these ideas that I consider to be non or anti-Marxist have an appeal that expresses something about reality, expresses something about social reality. But for that matter, as far as I'm concerned, that's no different from like some alt-right mysticism. You know, you were talking about like Jordan Peterson or like, I don't know, the Proud Boys, like save your, your ejaculations to save your vital masculine energy, right? Like to me, that's no more or less valid than Lacan is, right? And it's all kind of bullshit. But, you know, it all speaks to something real. Get out of here. Just get out. All right. I'm closing <laughs> I'm closing the stream. Everyone, it was nice. It was nice knowing you all. Catron's never coming back. No, and, you know, and I, I think that uh, there's a good case to be made that you are wrong on Lacan uh, because and, – and I think that for a lot of these people who are heavily influenced by Heidegger and Lacan – Everything's a social phenomenon though, including Marxism. But the it's just a question of what's the, worthwhile. It, it, it does come down to a fundamental ontology. In other words, like Jordan Peterson's a Jungian psychologist, right? right so he believes right. in like male and female essence, anima and animus. So it comes down to fundamental ontology. And I'm sorry to say that Lacan is based on fundamental ontology. Yeah, right? but workers, like, Lord, what we got going on here. Organizers who would po pose themselves as representatives or organizers of the working class who do not understand subjectivity are fucked out the gate they're not going to have any they're not going to it's not no gonna we're dealing well. with intellectuals we're dealing with intellectuals so my my moral duty sense of duty comes from just like students who are reading Deleuze and Lacan and I'm like don't fucking waste your life man or if you're going to waste your life waste it on something more respectable you know, like if you want to be a leftist, you want to be a Marxist, don't go for the counterfeit adulterated stuff. Go for like the top shelf shit, you know, like let's let's get real here, you know. Um, let's have some, you know, like nice aged barrels, not some malt liquor from the corner store. What's up, everybody, and welcome to Theory Plebe. My name is David McCarricker. This is my channel, Theory Plebe. And I want to give a little bit of context for what you just saw before introducing what you're about to see. So what you just saw is a clip from a conversation with Chris Catrone, the founder of the Platypus Affiliated Society, an organization that I think has a lot to teach us. And uh, Chris Catrone, I consider to be uh, a person that we can all learn a lot from. But... Uh, this, this being my second conversation with him, it kind of stirred up a lot more controversy than the first. Uh, the first raised a few eyebrows. It was a conversation in lieu of a debate because Benedict Cryptofash did not want to come on, but he's been having an online argument through some articles and blog posts and stuff like that with Chris about the question of the left and, uh, on, on the side of platypus affiliated society. They say the left is dead, long live the left. And so they are an educational organization that brings together all kinds of tendencies on the left, um, whether people are getting new, you know, new, newly into activism or are burnt out from too much activism or, you know, people who are democratic socialists who are becoming, 
you know, radicalized or, or vice versa. People might be becoming less radicalized, uh, but whatever it is, it's, there's something for everybody. Um, they, it brings together all kinds of different people. Um, and the, and the conversations, uh, focus, they all kind of revolve around this question of what is the left? What would it mean to, to win again? <laughs> and, uh, Benedict Cryptofash's point, you know, he's kind of of that post-left milieu uh, that has emerged since 2020 with the uh, defeat and or betrayal of the Bernie movement. Benedict's got a stronger position, which is that today the only solution now is to be anti-left, right? If the uh, protest arm of the Democratic Party and its academic wing both play you know, rationalization, downplaying dismissal of, uh, or just shock troops to the Democratic Party, you know, oh, we're going to hold them accountable, but then we'll always fold right back into them, right? Um, then it's really just bad cop to the good cop, you know, kind of dynamic for those who are operating within those institutions and who are operating within this, you know, capitalist state, supposedly two-party system that where you know real real things might be on the table and a lot of uh, passionate um, interests obviously converge, but there are certain things that are just not on the table and just can't be and are always postponed and any kind of real conversation about something like capital is deferred. It's always deferred and then we just have to capitulate back to the lesser evil. And so coming from a old left standpoint um, or a more traditional, or orthodox kind of Marxist standpoint. Um, Chris Catrone brings a lot to the table, but he's not just bringing that standpoint. He's also um, remarkably really into the Frankfurt School and into uh, specifically Theodore Adorno. And so he brings together London and Adorno, which is why after that first conversation about the left, um, the conversation in lieu of a debate with Benedict Cryptofash, where Chris Catron came on. Um, he had talked a lot about Lenin and Adorno, and so I wanted to have him back on to, okay, so why and how are you using these two people who are often, it's kind of one or the other, right? And it was a fantastic conversation. This was two nights ago. And, um, but then he, uh, w there was a point there where he's talking about his own biography and what he feels his role is when it comes to educating people. And this is where he talked about how it is his moral responsibility. He feels compelled to, uh, to take people who are uh, essentially being led astray by these theorists who are non-Marxists, um, or he wants to put people back on track. He says to the real shit. Um, he, he says, if you're, he said, don't waste your time. Uh, but if you are going to waste your time, don't mess with Deleuze and Lacan and Heidegger and, and these other, you know, no, you know, go to the good shit, go to that top shelf, you know, get, go to Kant, go to Freud. Uh, and you know, uh, obviously for anybody who's been around the theory plebe channel, um, you know, that it's not a either or option. Um, though of course I have not had an emphasis on, um, say, Kant and Freud so much as Lacan and Zizek this year, especially. But in the last couple of years, we've done a series on Lacan and a series on Zizek. 
And uh, Mikey, uh, Michael Downs of the Dangerous Maybe blog, has been really developing this Zizekian, McGowanite kind of understanding of Lacan and Hegel and of, you know, it, when, it, when we say Zizekian and McGowanite, we mean, you know, this applied to understanding ideology and subjectivity. And so this is kind of what brought us all together. Um, uh, and, and then when I say us all, the people in this video who are going to be responding to Catron. But um, b before we get into that response, I'm going to allow the rest of, uh, or not the rest, but like the, some of the main things that Catron had to say about these other thinkers uh, to play here. And then, uh, and then I'll introduce the other young Zizekians who've, who've come together to, to respond to these, these points. And, and I get it. I understand the appeal. I get it. But I also think it's just because my fucking colleagues expose students to this shit first. Right. In so, other words, like my so, colleagues would everything great and profound in Heidegger and Lacan and Deleuze is in Kant. Right. In other words, it's Kant in Kant. thought about thought, uh, Kant thought about jouissance. Yeah. No. No. He did. No. Critique of judgment. Yes. Jouissance. Aesthetics. Is there. Jouissance Aesthetics. is there. Not that word. No. Okay. But so the phenomenon. The phenomenon. The juxtaposition between pleasure and enjoyment. Most yes. people take these things to be the same thing. Kant, the whole aesthetic theory of Kant is based on the distinction of beauty from ple the pleasant. Absolutely. It's all there. And by the way, it's it's all there, meaning Spinoza, like, you know, the whole Deleuzian thing, Spinozism. Kant deals with it, and it's much better. It's at a higher level. But nobody ever reads Kant because nobody ever teaches it. In other words, my colleagues in academia don't have students read Kant. They have them read Deleuze. So of course sure. the students don't know any better. They don't know any better. And they 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 think, oh, Kant was some kind of this or that. They have some like bastardized anti-Kantianism. And then, you know, they read Deleuze and they're like, this is profound. And I'm like, this is stupid shit. This is noodling. This is like garbage. It's essayistic. If you want to really think about these things, you're going to find it for real in Kant and Hegel. Freud. Okay. If you want to do Freud, do Freud. Don't do Lacan. Freud is so much better. So much better. It's real. Like Freud, again, go for the real shit. So, you know, there's no reason. So, and what, what, so, and in other words, death drive. What's your background? Deal with it in Freud. What is your background in Lacan? Your basis. I read to be able Lacan to before this. I read Freud. In other words, of course, you know, I'm a gay person. I was in college at Hampshire College in the 80s and in the early 90s. Of course, I've read Lacan. I read Lacan long before I read Freud. I read Deleuze before, before I really read much of Marx. You know, I've read this stuff. I get it. You know, I read, you know, Foucault, of course, Derrida. That's what was on my college syllabus, you know, and it was kind of like interesting. You know, I took it seriously. But then when I read the actual real thing that it's based on, I was like, oh, you know, in other words, Lacan is a meta commentary on Freud. The real thing is Freud. You know, Lacan is and the degree to which Lacan is not just a meta commentary on Freud. But he's reaching for Heidegger and reaching for pre-Socratic philosophers to make sense of Freud. That's when it goes haywire. 
that's when it it really goes off jumps the shark critique of psychoanalysis but then there are others you know there are there are other post freudians besides lacan and they're dealing with the same stuff no it's not like lacan is the be all end all of that but why do kids only know about lacan because it's what's taught in school it's zizek let's, let's be honest yeah it might be zizek i don't want to blame zizek for everything no you know, i mean i i i want to give him credit you want to say that that would be blaming but you know He's falling into, like, a kind of world that he's part of. He's part of the, whatever it is, uh, Ljubljana School of Psychoanalysis. So he's part of the same world, broadly speaking, the same intellectual world that academia comes from. I mean, he is an academic in that way. Um, and so there's an audience for him precisely because there's a whole generation raised on Lacan who are, you know, ready to have Zizek say, and this is why this political phenomenon relates to this psycho psychology, right? So, you know, Zizek didn't cause it. Now, you know, I'm here, look, I'm in my 50s, I'm older than you guys, and basically I'm here to tell you it's not like Zizek came down on a spaceship on the day that the Earth stood still. Right? <laughs> There's a whole history before this, right? And so when I first read Zizek, I knew exactly where he was coming from. Whereas I feel like you guys, whose first introduction to Marxism and leftism is Zizek. You think Zizek came from like Mars to pass judgment on the world. I will say right? for, me and, for me and Mikey, this is not the case, but you know, go on, yeah. But you know what I mean, like in other words, I'm I'm horrified by the idea that the first word of Marxism would have been by Zizek. For a lot of people, yeah, sure, yeah. You know, and because not because Zizek is so bad, but because Zizek just presupposes so much. Right. And it's sure. like you need to know the conversation you're entering into here. Otherwise, this the the humor, the meta commentary, the inflection doesn't make any sense. You know. He's yeah. entering into an argument that exists, yeah. you know, and he's making he's making provocative, perverse statements that only make sense in that discussion. Sure. And you could even say that maybe Zizek's trying to do that, too. Right. Maybe. But I also feel like Zizek really is a Lacanian in the beginning and at the end, meaning um he said that he's more of a Hegelian than a Marxist in his debate with Peterson, actually. So, right. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, you know, a Hegelian, right, but a Lacanianized Hegelian, this kind of right, funny right. way of reading reading Hegel. Um, I mean, again, I don't want to, like, rag on Zizek at Are all. Are you very familiar with the, the work of Todd McGowan or the book specifically Emancipation After Hegel? Um... Yes, I know his work a little bit, and that in particular would be, I think, the only thing that I know by him, actually. Okay. Um, and so, you know, again, I'm also familiar with how there's been a kind of return to Hegel after the 60s. Robert Pippin's part of that. You know, um, there's a kind of neo-Hegelianism. And well, it's this idea of the teleological Hegel, Hegel of synthesis, right? The teleological Hegel of synthesis is wrong 
and you know he's a lot more this thinker of contradiction that we got to emphasize that and that to to not do so and just to write him off as an idealist is a mistake right um oh certainly that's true i mean but the problem there is that it's kind of proceeding on false premises meaning it's kind of starting off with a false problem a pseudo problem which is hegel's not a teleology of the future uh, that would be Marx, I guess, because he's a socialist revolutionary. I guess people think that there's some Hegelian teleology to Marxism that's a teleology of the future. I don't think that that's really true of Marx either. But Fair. this anti-teleological this anti stuff is postmodernism, and we have to understand that it's anti-Marxist. Right. First and foremost, it was like anti-Stalinized Marxism, and it was like, you know, anti-master narrative, whatever. And or grand narrative, you know, I think that, again, because of Stalinism and because of the failure of Marxism, there's this misplaced anxiety about Marxism and about Marxist Hegelianism that I think is just a false way of posing the problem. Right? The, the problem is not, you know, that Hegel and Marx think that we know what the future is and that we have to subordinate ourselves to that future. It's rather, no, we have to discipline ourselves in the task of freedom now, today. And what does history tell us about how we got here now? So I think that this is a, a real challenge and should be taken seriously. And I really appreciate um, Katron coming on and I... I uh, look forward to future conversations with him. Um, I think that we still have a lot to learn from him and hopefully vice versa because, uh, well, I think you'll hear why in this conversation. We don't want to just respond by saying, oh, you're a thinker or whatever is irrelevant or something like that. But it's always the point. The point for us is there are fundamental concepts and contributions to the life of the mind that have come by way of uh, theoretical intervention by uh, thinkers who cannot be avoided if what we're trying to do is think through uh, why we've failed in the past and how we can do better. And, and learning from history doesn't just mean reading history. It also means um, reading the theorists who saw significant wins and then experienced tremendous loss and then spent decades working through the fundamental assumptions and presuppositions that had perhaps gotten us off on the wrong foot. And so, yeah, without further ado, I want to introduce everybody to Trey from Telos Bound, Andrew from Master Signified Bodies, Mikey of M Michael Downs of The Dangerous Maybe, and our prize guest, Professor Todd McGowan of the Y Theory podcast, as well as a YouTube channel that you should definitely subscribe to. In fact, there's a bunch of links down in the description um, and in the pinned comment. So make sure to subscribe to all those channels and do all the stuff with that. Let's, let's get to it. I just said everything. Well, I want to say. hey, I have to do take twos a lot with you. So <laughs> it wouldn't be a theory, please episode if it wasn't for technical difficulties <laughs> and you're not just repeating yourself because i didn't hear any of it <laughs> all right so so here's here's the long and short of it 
there have been a bunch of videos and content recently in the Theory 2 world that have dismissed or downplayed or in sort of ways said you don't need to bother with certain thinkers that uh, I think all of us hold near and dear uh, because their concepts are fundamental or essential to our own thinking and and to thinking about ideology or to subjectivity or anything like that. And uh, this is not essentially just because, oh, we're part of the left or whatever, because we're not all just, you know, gung-ho about trying to make the left win or whatever. That's not everyone's project. But insofar as it is some of our projects, we think that there are critiques that come from some of these thinkers that are being downplayed and dismissed that, um, well, it's, it's, not, it's not always fair. And, uh, or there's something that we see perhaps that others aren't seeing. And so um, th then last night, I had Chris Catrone on to talk about Lenin and Adorno, and it was a really great conversation, and I respect him a lot. But I told him I think he's probably wrong when it comes to Lacan because uh, he said people shouldn't waste their time with that. People, people should stop going for this uh, malt liquor and go for the, for the old barrel. You know, there, go for the, go for, he said, go for the real shit. You know, he said there's nothing in Lacan you can't get in Freud and Kant. That, you know, don't read, don't read Heidegger, read Kant, you know, and, but, but really he wants us to read, to read Marx, Freud, you know, Kant. And so the, you know, I, I slept on it. I, I we didn't want to, I, I didn't want to focus on it during that stream too much. I did try to defend a little bit, but I didn't want to focus on it too much because that wasn't the point of the stream. Um, but when I woke up today and I had a bunch of messages from people about it and a lot of people are feeling like, yeah, I've tried to look into these thinkers, didn't make any sense to me. I figured it was just a bunch of nothing. Maybe they're right, uh, or, or maybe he's right. Um, I said, all right, now I want to do something. <laughs> I, want, I, want to, I want to give people a chance to respond. And because I brought up Todd McGowan, uh, the host of Why Theory and author of Emancipation After Hegel, as well as a lot of other fantastic books, who's currently joining us today, um, I thought, you know, it, because I brought him up in that stream and Catrone said, yeah, he's he's read Emancipation after Hegel. And then he kind of said some things. I don't know how much they were actually a response to Todd's work in particular, but he also spent some time dismissing Zizek. And that this has become a bit of a, a thing ever since the Vivek Chibber conversation with Zizek. Um, there's been a lot of Marxists in my life who kind of go, so what's the point of Zizek then? Right. If you watch that, because Zizek doesn't defend his own position, um, you might walk away from it and think, oh, well, Chibber's got it all figured out. Well, um, since then, also Dugan took some pot shots at um, Zizek and now uh, on my stream last night, Catrone did as well. And so we don't think that he's just a clown and we don't think his ideas are reducible to just Lacan, whose ideas are reducible to just Freud. So, so what do we think? But first, I wanted to give everybody an opportunity to introduce themselves. We'll start with uh, Andrew, Trey, Michael Downs, and then it'll be Todd McGowan. And I just suggest that everybody says something about: Did you see it? What did you think about it? Keep it respectful. We're doing this off. off we're, we're doing this offline so that nobody's able to, you know, be disrespectful, really, because we want to keep it respectful. So, yeah, take it away. Okay. Um, and then you want me to add the questions that I have right after the introduction? Or? We'll get into questions after introductions. Uh, so 
my name is Andrew, um, and then my YouTube channel that I'm slowly building up, thanks to uh, Theory Plebe over here, is called uh, Master Signified Bodies. Um, it's mainly focused on Lacan, and I hope to incorporate other theorists like from phenomenology, uh, critical theory, etc. Um, I started getting into philosophy when I was about 16. I'm 25 now, and um, while I was on deployment, because I'm in the, currently in the Navy, um, in 2018, I started getting more into Hegel. Uh, I read The Science of Logic when uh, I went into Bahrain and uh, no, Dubai, and I went to the big library or bookstore that they had and I got The Science of Logic, Phenomenology, Spirit. And so that kind of sent me more into continental uh, besides what I used to get into, which was just Plato and Aristotle, ancient Greek philosophy. Um, but it wasn't until um, the Zizek and Jordan Peterson debate that I found out about Zizek and then I got into him and then through him, uh, Lacan. And so now I feel like I'm more situated in Lacanian theory. My goal after I get out of the Navy is to be uh, a psychoanalyst. So my interest in Lacan is not just theoretical, it's also clinical. Um, so yes, that, that's, that's a little bit about me. Um, my, my overall channel besides the um, YouTube channel, I, I have an Instagram channel where I focus on making a lot of uh, memes with philosophy and psychoanalysis. And I kind of like make it a little like hilarious so, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's my suggestion. That, it was me, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, hi, I'm Trey. Uh, I run the YouTube channel Telos Found. I've uh, I've interviewed Todd. Uh, I've interviewed Andrew. Actually, we had a discussion two days ago, which was really really good. Um, and I plan on having Mikey on soon. So, uh, yeah, I'm not too heavily involved in politics at all, or just uh, online. Uh, leftist stuff at all. Actually, this is the first time I ever heard of Chris Catrone. So um, I thought it was, an, I listened to the whole thing. I, th I thought it was an interesting discussion. Uh, I obviously don't agree with him on the place, uh, role that theory would play. Um, but um, I thought it was, uh, I thought it was interesting. And I, I want to hear, I definitely want to hear Todd's uh, take on, on what he said. So um, uh, I know, Plebe, you, you uh, asked uh, us to, talk about why theory is important to us or at least like what uh it brings uh to our as a value to us so i guess the biggest thing for me i would agree with you is subjectivity and uh that would be the biggest uh not having a proper understanding of subjectivity to me would be the biggest uh issue with uh any position that i i guess maybe that chris catrone would have where uh you really aren't emphasizing the contradictory nature of our very being. So, uh, yeah, that's really all I have to say. So I'll pass it on to uh, Mikey. Hey, everyone. Um, yeah, regular on Dave's channel, Theory Plebe. Uh, I've got a blog called The Dangerous Maybe, uh, primarily focused on um, explaining and teaching uh, the ideas of Lacan, Zizek, McGowan, uh, uh, Baudrillard, Deleuze, and um, currently working on my first book. I a couple books actually, but um, yeah, just uh, you know my my work and the perspective from where which I'm critiquing things or analyzing things is from this Lacanian, Zizekian, McGowan psychoanalytic theory. So, but I, uh, you I'm didn't say Mar you didn't say Marx though insignificantly. But the fact is, is you do consider yourself. Oh, I, I mean, I, I absolutely love Marx. I still think that 
Marxist critique of capitalism is still the, the greatest, most systematic critique of capitalism we have. Um, it's just, I don't think you can disregard the insights of all these other philosophers and theorists. And I think any critique of capitalism now has to absolutely incorporate them into it. And without it, I, I, I don't even know why you wouldn't want to have a more robust, uh, detailed theory of how capitalism structures not just institutions or the economy, but also subjectivity. So, you know, that's where I'm at with it. Great. I'm just happy to be here. Thanks. <laughs> Let's, we can we could go ahead. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, and uh, Todd, did you get a? I, I it was funny. Um, I, I did. I got, I got to listen to the to the part at the end that that Trey sort of scooted it up to where it discussed theory. Yeah. And yeah, Lacan. That time yeah. Step. Yeah. I never well, knew you and, could do that, so that's cool. That shows how old I am. Yeah, I didn't. It shows I don't even know anything. So, yeah, Todd, you and I, oh, we're, really we're, cool. we're the boomers here. I, Dave recently <laughs> had to show me how to timestamp, so we're both in the same camp. Timestamping is so cool. So uh, it's funny, the two boomers, I guess, self-identified. Um, I'm, I'm a bit of one, too. I have had so many problems with audio today. But uh, you both just got out of Top Gun 2 at the same time. Oh, did you just see it, Todd? I just saw it, and I was just saying, Andrew, what do you want to leave the Navy for? I mean, you can... You should want to fly jets. I mean, right. forget being a Lacadian analyst. <laughs> you could go blow up a nuclear reactor in Iran. Hey, Todd, before Lacan uh, says, uh, je, je it starts with a tickle and ends with a blaze of patrol. Like, yeah. Yeah. That's the uh, that's the good jouissance right there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, I can't be in aviation because when I stepped in, they like did the eye test and they're like, oh, your eyes don't you know fit for a fool for, um, for the for aviation side. So right now I'm a, I'm a gas turbine electrical rate. So I work on modified jet engines. So, which is cool is like, I, I can work on jets because the same principles and mechanics apply for um, the way the ship engines run. That's sad, but so it's that's kind of like a Little Miss Sunshine problem, right? Like, remember he, he learns, he's because he's, he's colorblind, he's never gonna be able to fly. And then he, he has a total, <laughs> he has a total breakdown. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so what like is it? I loved it, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think it may be better than the first one. Oh, it's far better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The first one's kind of like a... The only I've thing seen the like, first one so many times on deployment. It's just, it was just like, oh, my God. Here, it's the same thing with Forrest Gump. I'm just like, again, with yeah. all these military movies. Yeah, I know, I know. The second one's much better. Yeah, I, I agree. Know. Yeah. It uh, The trailer definitely made me think of Death Drive, which I'm going to use as a segue because uh, I... You know, I, I want to keep things relatively positive. I can see why someone who made their commitments ideologically a long time ago and is focused on working within a certain area of theory and history um, and, and is an expert in these areas uh, might not take other areas outside of where they're working ser you know, too seriously. And so I think we just need to speak from our own standpoints. Um, for me, Marx, uh, really reading A Strange Labor and, and Wage, Labor and Capital um, were, were foundational to everything for me. Um, I read that in my freshman year of college. On my own, my, my professor in my political philosophy class did not assign any real Marx readings. It was just a summary. We did in-depth readings on everything but Marx, and then it was a summary when it came to Marx. And so that was when, the moment when I actually kind of realized my professor's biases. So I went and did some research on my own, and it was a strange labor that helped me kind of connect the fact that so many of my experiences that I'd either blamed myself for or others 
um, we're, I mean, obviously I'm still involved, but also there, there was bigger structural things in play that I hadn't understood before. And, uh, you know, not, not really thinking about the way that poverty shapes your possibilities, much less your loved ones or the neighbors or, you know what I mean? And so, um, that was a real beginning of thinking about subjectivity in this larger structural context. And, uh, it was through Michael Downs, um, after I'd already really gotten into or been getting into Heidegger and then we had a lot of conversations about Heidegger, um, Michael Downs got me into uh, Levinas and Lacan and we read Difference and Repetition by Deleuze together and um, you know obviously I got into every every sophomore goes through their Nietzsche phase and I did I did but the thing is it's not just a phase like some people say right um, there are pieces of that that stick with you and for me it's raisonnement you know in in so far as uh, you know he he's he, you know, you are your, your will to power, your your desire to act. It's thwarted, and um, it because it's thwart, thwarted, because it's obstructed. Um, thus begins like the life of the mind. You know, um, for him, he says that uh, without slave morality, the the history of humanity would remain stupid. Um, and, and it's true. I think that like in, in a lot of ways, all of us have had our possibilities um, restricted by capital, and so. But at the same time, though, raisonnement is a bad habit, right? Because uh, if, you, if you don't realize that it's foundational to subjectivity and to the life of the mind, um, it's really easy to go with narratives that give us a cheap sense of superiority in the aesthetic or physical um, or moral um, uh, sense, right? So you think, oh, well, because I don't subscribe to this or because I think that winning is actually stupid well you know i can just sit on my couch and i'm a winner right and so it's it's obvious why then um the left in particular could could have a problem with resentment now uh nietzsche is not a leftist but nonetheless um that's that's a good self-criticism so i did you know i did a lecture on that but uh on the on the ways that christians and, and socialists alike can benefit from thinking about sp specifically that concept so i just wanted to like say what are, what are some other concepts? I want to deal in concepts in this conversation. I don't want to deal in names and just writing people off. I want to talk about like wh how what are some concepts essential to you all when you're thinking about these thinkers that a traditional Marxist might just write off? Yeah, I thought you you mentioned. I heard you mention this yesterday. I think it to me it's the most important concept is death drive. You know, and I think that Freud. To me, the, the 1920 move and beyond the pleasure principle when he comes up with Death Drive, I think it's maybe the most revolutionary move of the 20th century, right? Like, I think it's the moment where, like, he he disturbs himself. <laughs> like, he, he even, you can see as he's writing the book, like, he's like, I don't want to think this. I want to try to fit this back in this idea of pleasure principle. And then he can't, and then he doesn't even know really how to go about it. And then I think Lacan, even when he takes it up, isn't quite sure what he means. Like there's this stuff in Seminar 11 that I think is pretty good where he, he goes through this Aristotelian 2K and automaton, and he tries to think about the way in which the real would fit. Like it's this return of the real. And then I think it's it's really Slavoj who, who links, I mean, Freud kind of does this, but Slavoj who insists on this link between 
the repetition of failure and death drive and 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 he links death drive to uh um, to immortality to some of this like immortal this in my friend Mari Rudy calls it the immortal within right this like thing that insists beyond life and death and I think that's it's a you know Freud wouldn't have said that but this like self-destructiveness is what we repeat and I think that's to me that's the most important concept of the 20th century probably so I think that's the one and I think yeah I mean to speak to what Chris said yesterday yeah I think that's in Freud for sure but it seems to get a, a real concrete additional development from Lacan and then I would want to say like Slavoj really makes it uh he 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 kind of makes it concrete in a way that Lacan does doesn't you know I I I I I guess this is my bias I I grew up I think around the same time he did and I mean part of the problem is that the translations of Lacan in the 1980s were um just disastrous right they were disastrous so you couldn't so basically no one who did not speak French knew what Lacan was saying. They just did it in America until Slavoj wrote Sublime Object Ideology. And I would I would even challenge anyone like go back and look at every single book written on Lacan in English in the 198 before 1989 which is when Sublime and everyone is just wrong. Just wrong. And then all of a sudden Slavoj writes that book and then there are books that are not wrong. So so the notion that he doesn't do anything or I just think it's it's crazy. And and I also think that he's trying to I think his project is much more a here's how I would say it. I think he Hegelianizes Lacan. Like I don't think he Lacanianizes Hegel. And by by that I mean I think that he brings this Hegelian emphasis on ontological contradiction, which would be something Lacan would have no, he just, that would, he would never want to even talk about that. He's, just, he's not interested in any ontological claim. He, he says, I think somewhere, you know, everybody has their ontology. I suppose I do too. That's about how interesting he is in ontology. Uh, right. But I think Slavoj is really interested in it. And, and he's, he's bringing that into Lacan and this, this notion that we can get beyond thinking about just the transcendental framework that we have beyond this Kantian transcendental to make some real ontological claims. And so that's what I think is, for me, one of Slavoj's biggest contributions, which is tied to this notion of death drive, because death drive is really our own, it's a, it's a way in which Freud, he mentions Hegel twice and he doesn't understand him, but uh, it's the, isn't death drive a way in which he's brought Hegelian contradiction into his conception of subjectivity? All right, I'll stop. I think a nice bridge, um, actually, segue here would be uh, Michael is working on a piece, and I, I don't – obviously, he can't unpack everything right now. Um, it's coming soon. Everyone needs to stay tuned for it. Um, I think uh, we, we when we went on the acid left and talked to Adam Ray Adkins, uh, people might have seen the cover of the book, uh, but there's a blog post version of Zizek at work that will be coming out. And maybe you could talk to the blog title version of it and tie Death Drive into Jouissance. And we, because I brought up Jouissance, but I never got into what it is um, on the stream last night because Catron was talking about, well, Lacan, everything there, it's, 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 you can get that elsewhere in Kant, et cetera. And I was like, I was like, Jouissance. I kept saying it, Jouissance, Jouissance. 
like no, jouissance and then he then at some point he was like yeah like jouissance and i'm like thinking i'm like what and then he brought in like Kant sublime and all this other stuff and i was like I've I've never made this connection, uh, but Mike Mikey, as as the Marxist, right? Like, or or you you care about working class, you know, or ab abolishing okay, it. Okay. <laughs> I, I, here's what I got to say. Okay. Yeah. Uh, How does it factor? Off, before I kick into like my Lacanian Zizekian side, I have nothing but the utmost respect for Chris Catrone. Anybody who has 100%. spent their life educating Americans in Marxist theory or even leftist theory, like that is such a service trying to help Americans get tapped into any kind of leftist, leftist thought, that is a totally. huge contribution. And I have nothing but the utmost respect for that. There needs to be more of it. Um, when Chris started talking about Lacan and Tijek, he, he loses me a bit. I'm not going to lie. Um, yeah, Todd, I don't know if you saw it where, uh, and not trying to, again, it's not disrespect, but, okay, so at one point Chris says that the concept of jouissance is somehow Kant formulates the concept of jouissance because he makes a distinction between the aesthetic experience of beauty and the aesthetic experience of the sublime. Now, Todd, I'm sure, I mean, you know, you know of course, that this is big for us Lacanians, but okay. And obviously there's a certain homology between beauty and sublime and jouissance and pleasure. But to act like all of Kant's insights into the libidinal economy are tucked away in Kant's aesthetic theory, I mean, we're not gonna we're not gonna agree with that. So uh, we're gonna say there's a little bit more to Lacan than uh, Kant's aesthetic theory. Um, so that's where I would come with it. Now, my work, I mean, most of you you all know that I'm uh, I work in a warehouse. I'm you, you know distribution company where I work in a warehouse pulling orders, or I'm out on the road delivering. And so I, I see how Zizek and McGowan's work and Lacan, I see how all of this theory um, applies to the structure of wage labor. And what I mean by that is how workers interact with each other. And so, like I was telling you guys a minute ago, before we started, I, I wrote a piece called Zizek at Work. And uh, the subtitle, I believe for the piece was how jouissance factors into wage labor. And it's a basically a concrete analysis of how all of these various psychoanalytic concepts and dynamics are things I navigate every day at work. And that I would not, I couldn't even begin to really orient myself with what goes on in wage labor without Lacan, Zizek, and McGowan. And it's just, like, I, I don't know how anybody can understand, especially wage labor. There is so much jouissance and scapegoating and inherent transgression built into it that I, I, I honestly don't know how you make sense of it without it. And I, I think that's why, honestly, so much leftist organization and even wage laborers themselves who have nothing to do with leftist organization, why wage labor is this perplexing thing. Most wage laborers, laborers, first off, they don't have any Marxist theory at all, you know, that traditional understanding of it. They don't have the psychoanalytic theory, and so they're lost. There's no unions, you know, uh, there's no class consciousness, there's no ideas of how subjectivity works or why we're all at each other's throats or blaming each other over nothing. Like, 
none of these dynamics are understood by wage laborers. And so that's what I'm trying to do with, with that piece. I'm trying to take the theory side of me and then apply it to everything I have to deal with at work. And so there, there's a, a Spanish version of it that it was actually translated and published in a Spanish journal. There's not an English version available yet. And that's only because I don't know if I want to make it a blog post or if I'm going to have, you know, expand it and turn it into a short book. But that's, I mean, it's going to, I want it to come out as soon as it can. So. That's and I, and I, I think, I think we need to unpack our terms at least a little bit here. Um, Jouissance in particular, but the other thing is just to say, because I've heard you say it plenty of times, you know, love Marx, but there's not a real theory of the subject there. And in fact, this traditional theory of ideology is one that uh, it's it's just like, well, you know, humans are governed by their self, their rational self-interest and the pleasure principle. And uh, but but they're under false consciousness. And so really, like they just need to see what's in their interests and then they'll work together and then they'll achieve the thing. And Andrew, I see that you're nodding your head um, and, and I know you've got some experience in Marxism as well. So you maybe you want to jump in at this point. Yes. Yeah, so um, I used to be a part of the IMT for a little bit and it was like a little like uh, irritating when uh, Chris Catrone was, uh, you know, and I respectfully had my uh, my opinions. Uh, but when he said that, like, Zizek is, like, just, like, this, like, grace from God, or what did he say? Uh, uh, he Dave, said, hey, like, he, he said, he said, hey, you know, you kids today act yeah. like, you know, the world stopped, and Zizek came down like an alien from some UFO. Yeah, and and then it's, it's weird because, like, it's, like, maybe for his students or for, like, uh, people in the university that get into leftist theory, but in the CPUSA or in the IMT, that's not the case. Like every, every, everything is Lenin, everything is um, Trotsky um, and all this revolutionary theory. In fact, they don't even tackle with Marxist capital, um, let alone with Zizek. In fact, the socialist appeal, which is the UK side, made um, a, a lecture like almost like a year ago now, um, criticizing not only the Frankfurt School, but also Zizek and Alain Badu for being bourgeois and for being the reason for the failures of the working class. Um, and my opinion is the same like for the rest of them, that Marxists don't take into account jouissance, but subjectivity in, in general, and they misconstrued the dialectic as like some type of evolutionary naturalist type of thinking. Um, and with that being said, like they don't take into account that most workers you know, even though that they realize that they are alienated or they hate their jobs, that at the end of the day, as soon as they get that raise, that all of a sudden now they want to move to the managerial class or like they want to move to like, you know, somewhere in corporate. Even in the military, there's so much, and this is why I love Zizek so much and why I think it's important with ideology because I love Althusser, but at the same time, I think he doesn't add room for subjectivity or desire. Um, and Zizek mentions uh, cynicism in ideology and fantasy. And there's a lot of that in the military where it's like they realize that there's this like, um, you know, unequal opportunity. The conditions are terrible, just like in the corporate environment. But as soon as they move up in rank and status, then all of a sudden they like, in a sense, disavow like those those uh, resentment and resentment, the, the fantasies of like, oh, how they're going to get out or what they would do to their bosses or whatever. And then now they affirm the ideology and then they affirm that uh, way of living 
and they end up just staying in the military. They stay in corporate and, and you know, stay in the, the corporate ladder, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's something that Marxists don't take into account for. And again, is subjectivity, um, desire, and the fact that even, for instance, in the Lacanian aspect, um, how desire situates, you know, uh, to use Lacanian terms, our ego. And, um, you know, I appreciate Mikey for, um, you know, affirming how well I did, but in my rough draft videos on Instagram, I was going over all of seminar one and I went over the optical schema, the, the inverted bouquet, to show like how pretty much, you know, the the eye is always situated within, you know, whatever framework of, of the, the mirror to see the, uh, the inverted bouquet and how that is pretty much referential to how desire and the, the formulation of desire as language or the law structures how we see ourselves or how we project the ego ideal out there. And so that's something that I think they don't account for either, that there is this ego ideal and it's commodified too. It's definitely commodified. And that's why sublime object of ideology changed the way I thought about ideology. It's that what we think about ourselves is nothing new. It's, it's literally group fantasy, but commodified for exchange. But that's all I have mm. to say. <laughs> I, uh, sorry, Trey. Uh, the only reason I muted you there is because there was some kind of weird mic feedback thing happening. It was like, chicka, chicka, chicka. but, uh, actually, and if you want to turn on and add anything so far as the least political person, um, and maybe talk about some jouissance or something like that, I, I think everybody here could probably talk about some personal yeah. or examples with other people or cultural things where jouissance is a factor and we can kind of unpack this concept as, since it's become so essential to the conversation so far. But yeah, Trey, do you have anything to add so far? Um, well, actually, I have a question for Todd, actually, um, because mm. uh, Andrew Andrew mentioned how um, uh, Zizek, uh, uh, Katron mentions how Zizek doesn't, didn't uh, fall from the sky or whatever. Like there was already like, but the way Todd was talking about Lacan and how Lacan was understood in America, at least, um, he said that everything about Lacan being written was wrong until Zizek. So in a certain way, there was something that Zizek uh, did. So I was wondering, um, it seemed like um, in order to say that Zizek didn't have such a profound impact, it, you have to already be presupposing that Lacanianism and these ideas like ju jouissance and death drive aren't essential for a modern Marxist uh, theory. So, and I think that's what he was trying to say, that it's just not as relevant as uh, Zizek and you, Todd, would make it out to be. So would you argue that Zizek was, he did in a way um, come down from the sky in a UFO because he made Lacanianism, uh, he made it, um, he really corrected the errors of Lacanianism at that time, and Lacan and this is important because you Lacan has uh, concepts like death drive and jouissance that are essential to a modern critique of capitalism. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it. I think, you know, I think he did in a certain way. I think it's right to say he kind of came. I think he says he came from Mars, right? Like I think that's. I think that's fine, right? Like I. I think that that's. That's fine. Like, that's how I have to say, like, having read Lacan before I read Slavoj, I felt like, wow, if this is what Lacan was really saying, Slavoj must have come from Mars because this didn't. And, and what's interesting is 
he doesn't like he totally changes the way that Lacan is received in America. But in France, he's not thought of as Lacanian, right? Like he's thought of all the French again. French, that was a funny slip. The French Lacanians that I know are all, they all just think he's Hegelian. Like he's just Hegelian. He's not really Lacanian. So it's interesting. Like he does, he kind of doesn't fit, I think, really. And that, I think that's important. But I would also just say that I think that just to come up with a couple things that are, I think, are original to him. And, you know, I think I, I would just echo what, what Michael said that, look, anybody that's teaching, like, Chris has done immense service, and I, I, I think what he said about look, uh, Lennon and Adorno is really smart, and and you know his his web magazine is really good, I think, and important. But I think like the dismissiveness of Slavoj, I think Slavoj understands the risk he runs, right? Like telling a lot of jokes, clowning around. Like part of it is he hopes to debating with Jordan Peterson. He hopes to like get people. He he he. He says this like there are these monks that would like learn all these jokes. They go down to the local bar to try to get people to come into the church. And he thinks that's what he's doing. The downside of that is people just think, oh, he's a clown. They dismiss him. And I know a ton of people that do that. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of serious serious thinkers that, that think he's pretty important. And I think I just would say the two things I think that he contributes that are no one else contributed are the notion that we're and, and Andrew, you were saying this, I think that we're idiot. And this is different than Altser, right? That we're ideologically interpolated as not as subjects, but as symbolic identities away from our subjectivity. So, so ideological interpolation obscures our subjectivity. That's just, that's Slavoj. That's just Slavoj. That's not, that's not Altser. That's not Marx. That's not anybody. That's Slavoj. That's not Lacan. That's Slavoj. Second thing is this notion that the way ideology really gets a hold of you is through this obscene phantasmatic underside, right? No one else thought that, like that was just him. And so I don't know. I think there are other ideas where he's really important. I think the reading of Hegel, there's a little bit Jillian Rose, a little bit anticipates him, but basically like he's, he's ex nihilo on that, like this re reading of Hegel. Catrone said that he studied under, I mean, he studied under some real, you know, title fighter like he, like uh, Dr. Adolf Reed, I mean, is an absolute icon. Uh, um, obviously, so is Moish Bastone. They were both tutors to Catrone. But um, importantly, also, uh, is it Robert Pippin, right? And so I was wondering if you would like to talk of just, I think you talk about Pippin in, in your work. And so, yes. so your position is, and, and actually I think honestly, McGowan, when I, th when I say something all the time now that to, to my audience, when I'm live, I'll say, you know, no thinkers understood in their lifetime. In fact, they're usually profoundly misunderstood. And the thing is, is it takes a hundred years or so for people to get it wrong and argue with one another and then someone else to come along and see it and then kind of recapitulate, reconstruct. And that that's just part of how culture is developed and that's how understanding and clarity comes together. But you, I think, are one of the people who really clarified that idea for me, just seeing it. And, and obviously I'd seen it with other thinkers as well over time, I've, you know, with Marx especially. Um, but then uh, I'm just like, you know, uh, with, with Emancipation After Halo, it's like it really does take some time of people being, you know, working with this big mess 
and then eventually someone comes along and is actually able to say it. And 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 I and I absolutely love how you're able to do that. But um, no, so not only do you say this about Lacan, you know, prior to what eighty nine, no one no one was everyone's working with a bad um, Lacan or completely misunderstood Lacan. Also and importantly, Lacan was salvaging a completely misunderstood Freud. And obviously, there's creative interpretation. Sometimes there's stuff that he's doing. I, I want to get into the ways that I think. If you just tried to do psychoanalysis without Lacan, you're trapped in modernity. You're pre-Heidegger's critique of modernity, and Lacan is adapting and bringing back the subject, but it's a renewed subject. And so, you know, it's like this important software update, that basically. But, but, not, you know, ego psychology is how America, you know, in, you know, uh, inter, uh, inherited and and interpreted uh, Freud, which is terrible. Um, but also Hegel. Also, so maybe we could just talk a little bit about some of these famous um, misinterpretations and how they've actually been undermining for understanding, but also when it comes to, like, say, the left. Yeah, I mean, Lacan is one of the worst ones, actually. Like, he's one of the, because his entire reading of Hegel comes from Alexander Kojev. So Kojev gave these seminars on the phenomenology and on other parts of Hegel in the 19, late, from like 1934 to 1940. and and Lacan went to them, and not only did he go to them, he had special sessions for a couple people at his house where he had Kojev come over for dinner. So he was very close to Kojev. He even says, he says this about three people, so it's clearly not serious. He says, Kojev was my only master. So clearly he had more than one master because he says that about Clarembeau, and he says that about somebody else too. So so there is a, but, but clearly he was close to Kojev. And Kojev basically takes the master-slave dialectic, and we, in fact, we call it the master-slave dialectic because of Kojev. Like, the, the, Hegel's terms are hair and connect, which would be like lord and servant, something like that, right? So, so, but, but for, for Kojev, it's metra and esclave. So it's, he, he, like, we even use those terms because of Kojev's influence. And, and Kojev ta basically takes that little, what is it? 12 page section of the phenomenology and takes it as the, the 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 index for reading the entire phenomenology so that's that was a and that just basically shaped how all of french thought so when deleuze says he's anti-hegelian when you know when when badu takes up a certain all when sartre takes up they're all taking up a kojevian hegel and one of the things you mentioned, Pippin, one of the things that Robert Pippin did was say, well, wait a minute, actually, we have to locate Hegel within this lineage of German idealism. And he's really responding to Kant and Fichte and Hoderlin and Schelling to some extent. And not he's not just this ex nihilo thinker of the master slave dialectic pre-Marxist. So that so that was a really important that's a book called Hegel's Idealism that Pippin wrote in the 80s. So that was really, that book is vitally important, I think. And and part of the way of getting away from that reading of Hegel focused solely on the master-slave dialectic, which makes him closer to Marx, I think, like that, or closer to a certain kind of Marx, right? Like it's all about the, the how the slave, uh, the slave is basically the author of history, right? Like that's the, like the rest of the phenomenology is the dialectic of the slave and the and the man and that, that is true, but but it's not a it's not a like a 
a, a way to read the entire book, I don't think. So that, well, that, that I, I think is, yeah. Well, it's something that I brought up and maybe I was correct or not. I would like to know, um, but I tried. You know, I said uh, that, you know, everyone's Hegel is this Hegel, this Hegel of teleology and synthesis. And the real point that is getting emphasized, you know, and salvage is like that that's not what's important here. It's like this yeah. this uh, this Hegel of, of contradiction. And, um, and, and I think that even this reading of uh, – or by Zizek uh, – it, it says that to to be a Marxist today, or to be you know even to, to be materialist today, you have to go through Hegel. What 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 in the world could that mean? Well, right. I think that that what you're saying is exactly right. That there was that the rejection of Hegel by this post-Kojevian generation of thinkers was a rejection of the you. I mean, I thought you're perfectly right to say teleological, right? Like there's a the history has an end. That it's already come to an end, that there, that we can know what the end is, like that whole idea of hey, and that the end is a synthesis, obviously, which is totally wrong. Those terms never appear. Thesis synthesis, synthesis never appears in Hegel. Uh, so that yeah, you're right. Like that really uh, is a one thing that was the part of the main misreading, I think, of, of Hegel. And I think what Slavoj means by that is just that we have to think that I think look. I have Marxist friends that think that this is that Marx doesn't think this, that, there, that there's no idea of contradiction being overcome in Marxism. But like if you think of the preface to the contribution, the critique of political economy, he does say bourgeois society is the last antagonistic form of society. Right. So there are these things where there's a, and I think when Slavoj says we got to read it through Hegel, what he's saying is you have to read it through this primacy and inescapability of contradiction that that's finally that that's what hegel contributes and that any conception of politics has to have that as its basis and that and that i think i don't know that slavoj says this totally but i i think it's implied in what he thinks that that one thing that capitalism does is it and this is what communism shares with it is that it it promulgates the idea that we can overcome contradiction and so a genuine leftist politics would have to be, no, we have to, it, there has to be the embrace of contradiction, not the overcoming of it. Like that, once we're on the track of trying to overcome it, then we've already submitted to the logic of capital or the logic of the right. Like any, so any genuine leftism has to be how to embrace, like what does it mean to embrace contradiction? And I don't know what that means. I mean, I don't have like a, like a magic key. Yeah, go ahead. Have you read that section in Todd Gitlin's uh, book on the 60s called The Revolutionary Loop? I have not, no. Okay, mind-blowing. You love it. And actually, this would be very useful to everything that you do, I think, because he goes – you know, so he was one of the lead members of Students for Democratic Society. He's part of the new left. Um, it was like him and a few other key figures. I think he was the, you know, the president or something of that organization for a while. He writes this amazing book. You know, it's a cultural, political, social kind of reflection. I mean, really, when you're, it's like there, there needs to be more books like this on specific periods of time. And you know, there's like the early years of the '60s, and it builds, you know, and the and the the, the new left comes together, and it doesn't want to be anti-communist but it doesn't want to be pegged as communist and so they they're trying to develop a new way um and you know and and gitlin's obviously like seemingly sympathetic all the way through but it, it, the the burnout period you know between 68 
and 69, right? This is where all of the the post-structuralist so-called thinkers come from is from, you know, they succeed, they get what they want, and then society goes back to normal and you get neoliberalism. And, you know, you, they shut down Paris for a whole month and then everything goes back and they go, okay, we need to understand reproduction. We need to understand subjectivity. We need to understand ideology. You know, but the, this was all, you know, the burnout happened on, on in the States as well. You know, and so because you had the riots in Chicago, fewer people than ever had actually shown up, but the people who did show up were the most militant and violent, and there was just crazy street fighting. And a lot of people went to prison or got their, you know, concussions, whatever. So this is a revolutionary loop. And he's talking about how as people leave, the people who stay always say, see, they were never genuine. And so it's it that's part of the loop, is because it purges and 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 drives people out and leaves really resentful ideological kind of cynical people and this is where you have you know various currents of feminism and black power become uber militant and uber segregationist and uber like you know and and there was just you know so it's a it's kind of, you know it's a revolutionary loop it's a really good period to read but what he talks about is synthesis and how contradiction became like a buzzword uh he says it, it became a wink and a nod of those in the know and but the what he's talking about when he's talking about synthesis is you know it's it's kind of like this maoist idea of synthesis yep. uh it's this maoist idea of contradiction um and 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 a lot of the people using the terms don't really know what they're doing so obviously we should probably clarify our terms but yep. one of the main things that he said that it did in the early stages, what it was, it made it really easy for people to not talk about their disagreements because they all just believed, well, we can just all work together and push towards the actual final event, the revolution. When the revolution happens, that will cause the synthesis. And so they believe, you know, it's going to be the fighting on the streets that eventually brings the synthesis. So we might disagree as a, you know, I'm fighting for desegregation, you're fighting for women's liberation, and and and, and you're a so, you're a social democrat, and this person's a communist, and we, we all have our own positions. But it's okay. The fusion of our powers will synthesize in the revolutionary moment. But then when the revolutionary moment didn't do what it was supposed to. All of those contradictions were no longer something that could be kept out of the way, and they couldn't be mediated. They couldn't be worked through. They couldn't be understood in any way. There was no community. And this is where you get the the the, the kind of scripts we were hearing in 2020. Oh, no, no conversation between you know oppressed and oppressor. However, we define that. That this the, these scripts come out of that moment of complete cynicism, and so synthesis in this sense. Um, insofar as the left inherited Hegel, uh, the Hegel of synthesis, like that's a real problem. And so that's why I found your work so like, you know, I've read Emancipation After Hegel and all I could think about was that, you know. Yeah, that's really good. I, I think that's really good. And I also think just to clarify, like, I think that you could confuse what Hegel says with what Mal says, but it's interesting, right? Like Mal in On Contradiction, it's clear that from that. For Mao, contradiction is opposition, right? Like it's it's like two oppositional forces that are against each other. And for Hegel, contradiction, and it ties to what we were talking about, about subjectivity and desire, because for Hegel, contradiction is always an internal, internal split, right? And so it's not like any external opposition is always an attempt to flee from that internal contradiction that, that's riven one and two. And so I think, to me, that's really, really important as a leftist idea, right? Like, I think that 
the right needs the enemy, and I think the left cannot have an enemy. I'm re I'm totally convinced of that. That anytime you have an enemy, you're avoiding the contradiction. So obviously there are adversaries that we have to try to combat, like you know Ted Cruz or whoever, right? But <laughs> but it's not. I don't think they're an enemy. Like I don't think that because there that that uh, that external opposition always has to be theorized in terms of the internal contradiction, right? Like it's a it's a manifestation or a a, a a way of that being expressed, I would say. And you're working on a book right now about left and right. Yeah, 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 that's true. That's right. It's called something like enjoyment, right and left. And it's about exactly this idea. Yeah. And, and, and you, when you use the term enjoyment, you're talking about that word we were using earlier, jouissance. Right, jouissance, right. I just, I know there are people that say, and this is like another little quarrel I have with certain French Lacanians that, that say you can't translate jouissance by enjoyment. And I, I just I find I'm so anti jargon. And that's I guess that's really my only problem with Lacan. I, I just think like don't invent terms. Never invent terms. That's what I love about Hegel. He never invents it's my problem with Lacan, that slight problem. But he invents a lot of words. And so I just think like just translate it. Like just and and then clarify what you mean. Like I think it I think it places more of a burden on us if we use the term enjoyment and people are like, well, that's going to be misunderstood by people. And then I, I just say, well, no, you got to go through the problem of like explaining what you mean by enjoyment, that enjoyment means, what does it mean? It means like it's not pleasure. It means there's some time, there's a suffering involved with the pleasure that I feel. There's a satisfaction that I get from it, but it's it also takes something from me. So there, I think that something like that, I think explains, like to me, that's better than just like throwing out a certain buzzword. Also, I, I want to add in there. I believe it's chapter four, if I'm not mistaken, Todd. In the new book, Todd has the best analysis description of this distinction between jouissance or enjoyment and pleasure that I've ever seen. So, I mean, look, I love the book and, and what it's saying about politics and political enjoyment, but the book is worth owning just for how it explains the difference between enjoyment and pleasure. So. Yeah. Well, I don't know about that, but uh, <laughs> I do. pirated. I'm the subject supposed to know. Here. I, you know, yeah. Hey, can I, I let me have a, a minute. I want to ask, Todd, yeah. a few questions here that I think really get at the core issue of why we're having this discussion. So, okay. Um, oh, and there's some echo. Maybe. Yeah, I don't he's, know if he's I, okay. You got it. Okay. So, Todd, all right. Zizek has said to be a Marxist today, one has to go through Lacan. Can you tell us why we must go through Lacan in order to be Marxist or good anti capitalists? Sure. I mean, I think that he's so a couple things, right? Like it comes back to our discussion of enjoyment and jouissance. It comes back to our discussion of death drive and the role that that plays in understanding. But I think it also touches on what Andrew said about, and these are all related, the problem of subjectivity, the way in which subjectivity, unconscious desire is a barrier to any kind of class uh, solidarity. Right. Like I think that like like subjectivity and I think this is like in I, I think I mean, maybe I'm wrong and maybe there are certain Marxists that have sufficiently theorized this, but I don't think so. Like I think that 
the way in which our unconscious desire is a barrier to class solidarity is a huge problem, right? That has to be worked through. And I think it's not clear to me how that gets worked through. Like, I don't think there's a, I don't think there's an ABC answer to that. Like, I think it's a, that's just a difficult theoretical problem that a lot of people have to work on. Like, I don't think like Slavoj doesn't have the answer to that. I don't think David Harvey has the answer to that. Like, I don't think Lacan has the answer to that because he doesn't, he's not even interested in that. I don't think Jacqueline Miller has the answer to that. So I don't think, I don't think France Fanon has the answer to that. Like, I think there's a lot of thinkers who are bringing together psychoanalysis and Marxism, but I don't think any of them have really co- adequately addressed this problem of solidarity and its relationship to subjectivity and unconscious desire. And I think that's the, that's a real problem. I mean, maybe they just need to see Top Gun Maverick and then they would, that would solve the problem. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, um, Here's another one, right? Okay. There is no theory of subjectivity in Marx. Isn't that a bit of a problem when your entire endeavor seeks to organize human beings? And then, just to quote you, uh, this is from Into Dissatisfaction. But if Marx errs, his error does not lie, as his critics often allege, in underestimating innate human selfishness. Instead, his error, and again, it is the common error today, lies in the other direction in underestimating the capacity of subjects to act in their self-interest. Against their self-interest, I think I said. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah, I, to act against their yeah, self-interest. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's absolutely, I still believe that. I mean, I think that book is genuinely not very good, but, and it's from like, what is it, 20 years ago? But uh, I still think that's true. I still think that people dismiss Marx as, oh, he failed, he's too, he doesn't see, he's not, He's too optimistic. I think it's the exact opposite problem. I think he's far too pessimistic about how self-interested we are. And look at, like, I I even think this about the way people analyze Trump, right? They're like, oh, he's such a narcissist. All he cares. About. No, he's like obsessed with the other. Like he's, he's so unselfish, right? Like he's just, all he wants to do is how can I please the other? Like, and so I just think like, if only Trump were a little selfish, things would be fine. So I think, again, like, I just think it, these these analyses that are, and I think it's a, to me, it's a clearly capitalist ideological analysis, right? Like, because that's the, that's the paradigm of capitalist subjectivity, that we're just self-interested beings that want to accumulate as much as we can. But I think capitalism works because we're not, because we're constantly like, like, think about how, I mean, I, I worked in a warehouse during college, Michael, and, and like, I almost never saw anyone act self-interestedly. Like I saw people do, all they were doing was self-destructive things. Absolutely. Right? Every like, day. Yeah. That's all I deal with. Every day. That's all I saw. And they have to scapegoat somebody and then that causes antagonism and they do it because it's, it, it, it's better than pleasure because pleasure's boring. So if we all fight and bicker with each other and, oh, oh you know, we, we haze the new guy. We're always excited when somebody new comes in. And then you always worry about, oh, is, are they going to be too politically correct or whatever? Are we going to have to like, you know, walk, walk on eggshells or, you know, um, are they going to enjoy our form of inherent transgression or not? If they don't, they don't gain access and they're never part of the inner circle. All of this is at right. work. It's good to know. Time. I have to say, it's good to know that the university is 
absolutely no different at all from <laughs> the warehouse. So it's just like there's no difference whatsoever. There's a little like, aren't you guys kind of off in your own spaces yeah. a lot, though, opposed to yeah, us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is true. That, that is you true. Know, there's this great quote, I believe I'd have to find it. It's Zhejek or Lacan, but um, it's talking about how jouissance always has to do with the proximity of the other. And we are so always dependent. Oh, well, they took uh, uh, an extra two minutes on their break. So they, they, they stole my yes. fucking enjoyment. Like, I hate them now. Like, it, all it is is calculating how much everybody else is not working or being unproductive how much more you have to do so you hate all of them they drive you nuts they're all shitty workers everyone's a uh, a terrible worker except you which is laughable right everybody is yeah so it's all of these we interrupt this conversation for a quick message from our sponsors all of theory plebe's content has been demonetized and self-funded for over a year Plebe and Mikey work in warehouses while using what little time with energy that remains to do what they love, theory. Part of Plebe's goals for 2022 is to focus on getting Mikey freed from wage labor. To free his time-energy from its reduction to labor power. Why? Because Plebe has learned more from Mikey than almost any professor or book, and if Mikey can get his time-energy, then he would be able to teach real online courses and publish video essays and that backlog of books he is always being obstructed from finishing. If you were unaware, Michael had a special kind of working living arrangement that made it possible for him to focus on nothing but the study of philosophy for six hours per day. Not just leisure reading, but struggling to articulate the hardest and most revolutionary concepts in the life of the mind. Mikey's standard was this, if he could not explain it to a guy on a barstool at the pub, then he did not understand it. But by the time Michael was ready to begin making his wealth of knowledge accessible through courses and books, tragedy struck. Now he has to work full-time and support his mother. That is why we must pound sign for E. Mikey before we can free ourselves. Towards the end of this video, when Todd McGowan and Andrew of Master Signified Bodies both leave to go to bed, Michael Downs explains why Deleuze is an absolute genius. And then he breaks down what Heidegger means by being in a way that is more accessible and clarifying than anything you will ever find on the subject, anywhere else. Promise. If you think you have lots to learn from him, or that the world of theory would more generally benefit from freeing him from wage labor, then consider supporting at www.patreon.com The dangerous may be. If you are one of the graduate students or professors in classrooms around the world who have found Michael's posts from the dangerous maybe blog helpful, then stop what you are doing and give a little back. He should have leisure time too. It will only help all of us. Pound sign for he might be every dollar gets him closer to having his time dash energy again. Thank you for listening to this message from our sponsors, by whom we of course mean you, once you have helped in the struggle to pound sign for he might be. P.S. When Mikey gets freed he will solve the riddle of history, complete a system of German idealism. Explain the body without organs without dumbing it down. Write the most important book on consumerism in America, and teach courses that are introductory and graduate level alike. They drive you nuts, they're all shitty workers. Everyone's a, uh, a terrible worker except you, which is laughable, right? Everybody is, you know, so it's all of these scapegoating dynamics or who, who, who doesn't, who, who avoids our form of inherent transgression. All of this is constantly going on. And you know who never factors into this form of, wage labor enjoyment capitalists and this is the whole problem 
the vast majority of the issues I deal with at work are my fucking coworkers. It's it's the other way. It's the capitalists leave me alone. Like I, whatever, right. no problem. Right. And this is an issue. The, the key issue is that Marxists think like, oh, if you just tell people, hey, you know, if you guys organize, everything will be a good. We already most of us hate each other or or blame each other for why one of us has to do all the work or oh they get special privileges because they know so that's all it is is this calculation of of who gets more enjoyment or who's getting one over on you or whatever absolutely i think that's absolutely right and i think again like that when you said like there is no theory of subjectivity in marx like that's the that's the essential problem that you just mentioned right like there's no I mean, there may be a notion of a collective subjectivity of the proletariat in Marx. Right. I think there is. But there's no sense of like the, the division internal to the class, which is which is because when you're an individual subject, you you're you're and I think, you, you know, Dave, you brought up this this great Nietzschean concept of ressentiment, right? Like and that, I think, really informs the way subjectivity develops, I think. You know, for for Lacan, I think it would, and for Freud, I think it would be something like envy. I think it functions kind of like what Nietzsche calls ressentiment. But I think that, that like that, that's just such a fundamental aspect of subjectivity. And it's interesting. I mean, one of the interesting questions I think is why we don't envy the wealthy and we envy people that are actually more impoverished than us. Like it's a kind of a crazy thing, right? Like 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 we envy. We envy immigrants that are coming, you know, that don't, that are, that are, that are undocumented and have no advantages at all. And yet there, there's envy about them and there's not envy about people that have yachts and, and mansions, right? So it's a, it's a very, that's a very strange thing, but I think that's a psychoanalytic problem, right? Like, I don't think that's a problem that any kind of Marxist conception of of capitalist society can understand but you you already you know like why does that work because this is where we have to turn to psychoanalysis because the ideological fantasy especially in america is that hey you're all going to be rich one day so you're all if you work hard you're all going to be in that position one day so you don't want it taxed heavily you want you want you know you don't want to see it negated because that's where you're going you're going to either win the lottery or whatever. I think it's more radical than that, even. I think you're right, but don't you think, like, there? so I, I read this survey about people against, it was a few years ago, but it was like 80% of the country is against the estate tax, even though, even when you tell them it's only going to affect the top 1%, they don't care. They're still against. But it's not because of what you said. It's not because they think they'll be wealthy. It's that they don't care. They still don't want the wealthy because I think it would disrupt a certain kind of identification they have, even if they don't think they'll ever get to that point. So I don't think, like, I don't think it, it, it I don't think it's even selfish, like I could be there sometime. Like, I think okay. it's totally unselfish. I think it's totally like, I want to, I want to still believe in this other that's up there purely enjoying riding around in their yacht on their private so is it more, You think it's more the subject supposed to enjoy, like somehow yes, enjoy yes. them? Yeah. This yeah, is like okay. this is like when uh, George Orwell in Farewell to Catalonia uh, says, like a few days after the revolution, and everything was smashed to pieces, and and no one had anything nice left. 
Um, you know, time dragged on. Things were not getting better. They didn't have ammunition to fight the fascists or whatever, and things were getting pretty miserable. And he said, this is where people started to be like, well, at least in the the way things were before the the, the revolutionary moment, um, at least some people had nice things. Yeah, right. I think that's absolutely right. Absolutely right. Yeah, like we have a tremendous capacity to enjoy through those other people, I think. Like, it, it, I mean, all enjoyment is through someone else, right? Like there's no, like even when I'm, I don't know, whatever, enjoying reading Hegel, I'm thinking like, oh, Hegel, God, he's so great. Or I'm thinking like, wow, what it must have been like to talk with Hegel and, you know, and, and you know, so or, I, I just don't think that there's any enjoyment that's not vicarious in some way, right? Like it's always enjoyment of the other. Online, people always use this term parasocial now for celebrities and, and for influencers. And yeah. and uh, so I, I know that uh, Trey and, and Andrew, I think, had a couple of questions as well, uh, locked and ready to go, locked and loaded here. So when do you want to go? I can go. Um, let me pull it up. So um, I think the because the first one I wanted to ask was more on um, on Lacan and his relevance, but I think we kind of already beating that like a dead horse. We know that he's uh, <laughs> like pretty much the one who brought up Joyce and Death Drive and nuanced it. And I was going to ask if you see any relevance to that with social theory and even anti-capitalist critique, because um, uh, Chris Patron said that you don't need to read him because he's nothing but just a meta commentary of Freud and he has nothing else to offer. But if you actually look at his seminars, and even like some of the early essays in the Cree, all that is, is, is you could say is meta commentary to Freud, but he's building off of that. And then you see him build up in the middle and then the late uh, seminars, mm -hmm. his own stuff like sexuation, graphs of desire, et cetera. Um, but again, like, I think if I, uh, the only thing I wanna ask is like, because he says that Freud is pretty much answering all of that and that he was used perfectly with Adorno and Marcuse. But would you see any of, of those concepts or something similar to that with the appropriation of Freud with Herbert Marcuse and Adorno and, and, and the Frankfurt School in general? Because I don't, in, in Eros and Civilization, all I see are the concepts like, um, you know, repression and domination and surplus repression and sublimation of libido through labor. But I don't see anything about enjoyment or subjectivity in general. Yeah, I think that's right. I think Erison Civilization is a terrible book, I think. I, I love Herbert Marcuse. I think he's a great, important thinker, but that's a terrible book. And, it, and part of the reason is because, just for the reason that you just said, is that is that it, it, it just takes, it's really a, basically about how capitalism creates surplus repression, repression is a bad thing, Let's overcome it with like, okay, like there's no, no understanding of no introduction of death drive into the, into the way of understanding things. I think One Dimensional Man is a great book on the other hand. I think Reason Revolution is a great book. Um, but I don't, I think you're right that there's not really a sense of subjectivity in the way that Lacan understands it operative in Frankfurt School at all. So I don't think I don't think you get that there, and I, and and, and in part because uh, I think both Adorno and Marcuse are more 
Marxist than they are psychoanalytic or Freudian. Like, I don't think that there is some uh, marriage of uh, Marx and Freud going on. I think there's a like, a, how can we bring and and this is what happened in like uh, certain kinds of feminism in the 1970s, like Laura Mulvey, like how can we bring Freud into the service or Lacan into the service of our Marxist or feminist project, right? Instead of like, is there like, is there a real leftist project within psychoanalysis that can help the Marxist project? So I, I think you're, that's absolutely right. And I would just, I would point to this one turn in Lacan in, in uh, this seminar, I don't think it's translated yet, from, from an other to the other, it's seminar 16, in which he invents the notion of surplus enjoyment. And he basically says, we could replace Marx's idea of surplus value with this notion of surplus enjoyment. And to me, it's too bad he didn't then write a book on like, oh, here's a whole critique of capitalism on the basis of surplus enjoyment. But I think he could have, and I think someone could, I know Slavoj has a book coming out just called Surplus Enjoyment. So maybe that's what he's doing. I don't know. He hasn't sent it to me yet. But I think that that, so I, I think you're right. Like that, there's some, that there's not a precursor of Lacan in Frankfurt School. And there is something that he's adding in terms of, I mean, is there in Frankfurt School a, a, a attunement to language? In the way that Lacan and the and, and the way in which the unconscious develops through our submission to the signifier, I don't think so. And I think that that and then like how that relates to the development of capital. That's a it just seems like that's a huge question. And like Slavoj's trying to work through that. Joan Kopchak tries to work through that. Alinka Zupanchik tries to work through that. Other people. So I, I don't know. I think that there's all this. There seems to be quite a bit that Lacan adds that Frankfurt School doesn't really take up because because I think for them the fundamental problem of capitalism is repression, right? Both for Adorno exactly. and Marcuse. Yeah, yeah. Even, so even I, like somebody like Wilhelm Reich, like it's always repression. There is no enjoyment. Like even with the function of the orgasm, you never see any like enjoyment. It's always repression. And if we had this like sexual revolution, things would be better. Like you know, and uh, overcoming repression. Right. That's I think that is the whole that seems like the whole game for that line of thinking. And I just don't think that's really the fundamental problem of capitalism is that it it causes repression. I just don't, I mean, well, that's your, I, your thesis in capitalism and desire. That's what I, the one thing I love. Right. You're like, no, this whole theory of repression, what capitalism bombards us with is desire and enjoyment. Right. Like right. Transgressions. Right. A lot of transgressions. Right. right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. It's tra like the the. And that's why there's this interesting relationship between capitalism and mastery, right? And, and capitalism and signification. So signification is structured around a master signifier and mastery. There's a tension between that and capitalism because capitalism is constantly impelling us toward transgression. And so those, it's, I think like this whole discourse of power, you know, like Michel Foucault, Giorgio Agamben, like what it misses is the way in which law and capital they're not just working hand in hand. There's like a there's like a constant tension between those two things because the whole structure of mastery is at odds with what capitalism is promulgating. And so, if you don't see that, I think you miss the the, the very structure that's going on. So I think your your point about transgression is absolutely correct. Maybe it wasn't as visible 
you know, in the early 20th century as it is now. And I think we should, you know, I think we have to acknowledge that, right? Like it, it's, it's more visible for us now than it maybe was for them, but it's definitely, but I think it's one of these things where, you know, is this a very Hegelian idea that when you see a thing at the end, it lets you know what it was at the beginning, right? So. Todd, just to piggyback off of Andrew's question, I mean, another way to say this, because I, I think Chris mentioned this, like, oh, you want to understand desire, go to Freud. Isn't the, the, the glaring issue that Freud didn't really have a theory of desire? It's Lacan that really worked that out? Yeah, I mean, like, I don't even think the word, what would it be like, Fairling, Thordon or something, or Forlangen, like something, like, I... No, wünschen, like wünsch, they're wünsch, like the, the word for Freud uses is wish all the time. Yeah, I was and, about to say the wish, because even in wish. clinical Lacan, he just talks about the wish, but never desire. Right, right. And, and, and then, so when he, so there's this really confusing thing, because he thinks that dreams manifest the unconscious, but he keeps talking about wish. And then a lot of times the wishes that he looks at in dreams are actually conscious wishes, right? Like, so it's, it's a weird kind of thing and he does that. I mean there Samo Tomsich has a in his book on I think it's called The Labor of Enjoyment has a really interesting discussion about how well desire really piggybacks on every wish and that's what Freud's talking okay maybe he's talking about that but he never makes it explicit at all so I think that I think that's the key point Michael is that there's no theory of desire in Freud there's a theory of the wish and wish fulfillment and then this, I've said this many times, but one of the things that's interesting is that he never goes back and rewrites interpretation of dreams after Beyond the Pleasure Principle, right? After he discovers Death Drive, there's, there's no... The nightmare, right? Like... Right, 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 right. Then, oh, and and I... then... oh, go ahead. No, sorry. I was going to say the nightmare would have to be the paradigmatic dream. And I think that's what all of us think, right? Like all of us have this one nightmare that we remember better than any other positive dream. So why didn't that... And if you if you look at interpretation of dreams, you're like, wait, nightmare, nightmare, nightmare. Where is it? It's like barely there. I so, think Jung yeah. has more nightmares compared to to um, to Freud. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and Todd. So as far as this theory of desire, let's be honest. Freud does not have the concept of objet petit a. He doesn't have the object cause of desire. And That's when he difference. talks about wish wishes or wish fulfillments, it's always yours. It's not the desire of the other. So. This theory of desire Lacan worked out is not reducible to what Freud was doing. No, nor to Hegel, I think. I actually think that this is, Lacan himself says it. He's like, the objet ought, this is in seminar 21 on uh, the non dupe there. He says, the objet ought is perhaps what I have invented. I, I think he's right. Like, I think usually people are always wrong about their own, what they discover, but I think Lacan's right. Like, I think he's right. Like, that's his one, that's the one thing that he really discovers. and. And, you know, because Hegel's theory of, of desire is basically we desire recognition, right? And, and recognition always fails. But what he doesn't understand is that we desire the point at which it fails. And that's what objet petit a is, right? Like objet a is the point at which the other doesn't know what it wants and doesn't, and, and doesn't recognize us, right? Like that's what we desire. And so once you think in those terms, then it's all different. And so I think that, I think that really is a genuine, genuine breakthrough. I was, I was going to say, can everybody hear me and see me? Is it working? Yeah. 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 I was going to say, you know, so I, cause I did the whole thing on synthesis, bringing in the, the Gitlin book. And I, I want to, 
say that, you know, if there's, because for me, it's always like, okay, so why do, you know, social movements that are trying to make the world better fail? And, you know, there's two kinds of theory. One is strategizing, how do we do it right now? And the other one is reflecting on, okay, so why did that not work? And that's basically how I now define the difference between the two kinds of critical theory, the one that's usually more Marxist or anarchist or whatever, and then the one that's usually more like post-structuralist or focused on desire and all this other stuff, because you know, these are thinkers who are troubled by the fact that things didn't go the way that they were supposed to. And so for me, you know, that responsibility to understand what went wrong so it's not repeated again, it's not just you learn history so that you don't repeat it. You also have to understand, you know, so theory. And so when I when I think of like the litany of, of things that uh, people keep getting wrong, right, that people need to get right, um, I think the, the thing on synthesis is important. I think enjoyment or jouissance is absolutely fundamental. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the idea of like the noble savage is, you know, a Rousseau, you know, a Rousseauian idea that's still alive and well with the left today. It's utterly absurd. It's, and it's racist. And then moreover, and obviously Zizek's really good for that, um, but especially a Lacanian theory is good for that. Um, but so beyond the noble, the, the noble savage, though, is that idea that, no, we're just we're all that we're good but it, but we're repressed and that's what makes the bad bad go you know bad bad keeps chugging along because we're repressed and so if we could just be freed up you know so Zizek says he says i don't want you to be yourself don't be yourself he's like everyone's always like oh i gotta be myself and he's like no go be yourself somewhere else in private i don't want to have to deal with you being yourself i think yourself is ugly and that's very provocative, and he's obviously being provocative on purpose, but I think that the truth in this, and I want, obviously, uh, Todd to be able to expand on it, but the, the truth here is just like, no, no, there's not like a, a precious little child or, or a noble savage in the heart of all of us that can just be, you know, we peel back the layers of the repressive onion, and then we'll all overflow and come out into, like, our full, flourishing, blossoming selves. Uh, so... This, yeah, this this idea plus the synthesis idea. I feel like these are fundamental, and it's and if that's not if that's not known at the outset and planned for, and th you know, then no, no amount of political strategizing is going to do anything for anybody. No, I think that's right. I think that how we're alienated is actually how we're freed, right? Like like the like because what you are fundamentally is what you've been given ideologically right like so so the way in which like being alienated from that like so when i read i don't know hegel for the first time or when andrew you bought i can't believe you bought Hegel <laughs> on a in Baram or something that's so amazing but when you bought like you you that alienated you right and but but that alienation actually brings you closer to something that is more authentic right and so i think like the notion that alienation takes us away from the authentic is completely wrong. It's we're actually alienated into some kind of authentic self. And that, and I think the other way to think about it is in terms of public and private, right? Like we're, who are you really? You're your public self. And this private, this stupid private self that you have isn't your real self. It's actually the self that you are in public, which is more important and is your real self. And that, I think what you, cited from Slavoj is in, in, in line with that. I, I, that kind of reminds me of the Jim Carrey's The Mask. It's like, 
he becomes yeah. like who he really is like in the mask it's not like when he's outside of the mask it's like he's showing like his true like or not his true self but he's like showing his enjoyment and his desires his unconscious desire in the mask yeah Slavo is big on this like the movie the joker like he has to put the paint on to actually be his be his true self yeah i love i i i think that it's interesting that Carrie also did that movie Liar Liar, where when he's under the spell, then he tells that then he becomes who he truly is, right? And, it, and so he seems to really like that idea that he has to be compelled to reveal himself as as who he or is. He, I mean, same with Bruce Almighty, where he gets to have the god powers. That's right. Or or we could keep going because I think Eternal Sunshine actually does the same thing, right? Like it has the same like when he's outside of himself. You know, being having his having his memories taken away, then he he finds out who he really is. So I think yeah. in this to man on the moon because like Andy was his true self in this kind of character he was right. playing, you know, publicly. Yeah, there's, when, a, whole, when, there's you, like a, yeah. Go ahead. a whole essay on that. A whole a whole a whole, a whole uh, Jim Carrey essay, yeah. Would you all agree then that uh, so Sartre when he's talking about the waiter? He's not exactly correct here because he's talking about, oh, you know, the waiter, he's playing this role of a waiter. He's walking like a waiter, talking like a waiter. This is not authentic. And the point is, is actually, no, like, uh, it, it, the, you know, uh, taking on a role, say you're a professor or a student, taking on that role and how you perform at that role, that brings out who you are. I think that's right, except I think what Sartre is right about is you're still not identical with the role that you're playing, right? Like, that's his point. I mean, like I, so, I don't think, yeah, you're still split. Exactly, exactly. Like, right? Like, I don't think Sartre's point is that there's this real garçon de cafe beneath the playing the, the role of, like, the way he holds the thing just perfectly. He talks about all that. It's a great section, I think. Um, I don't think he's, I don't think he's that naive. I think he thinks that the point is just that that when you believe you really are the role, then you're missing the split of subjectivity. I think Sartre's actually pretty good on the way in which subjectivity is divided. I just think there's no idea of the unconscious in Sartre. I mean, that's a that's a huge problem. It's just only but, bad faith. You just act right, like It's only bad faith, right, exactly. exactly. And that's the thing, Todd. I think both you and I, you know, we, we want to maintain, Sartre's right. There's something obnoxious and fake in that, Here's the thing. I don't know what the deal is with the management, but the the five guys burgers that go to on lunch, they you can tell because it's not like this at different five guys or whatever. They whoever's in charge really makes them play this up, and they're like, "Hi, welcome to Five Guys. I'm so glad you came in to see me." I'm like, "No, you're not. Like, <laughs> neither am I. Now I wish I I don't want to be here. I'm going somewhere else." So, there is this fake phony now okay if management's telling you to do it it's one thing because you know you're just following orders but this over identify uh, identification with your role we we often spot it and when people do it we it's obnoxious i i get why sart was annoyed by it yeah. so so i like i like this this being corrected on this and and what i want to i want to take it further uh get, todd could you break down for us a little bit more so you say that he's good you know sart's actually good unlike so many of the French, <laughs> of you know, understanding that splitness. Um, and, uh, well, and could, we, could you talk a little bit about how that idea of the split subject um, factors into or undermines these, these ideas 
of like the noble savage or the holistic child that's, you know, authentically at your inner core and tie that directly into, you know, Carl Rogers and uh, I don't know, like Maslow or positive psychology and ego psychology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, I mean, right. So any, any, there's no like original being that you are self-identical, right? Like that's the, that's the idea. And so any, any position that you, like any, like you're basically talking about Rousseauian romantic ideas of like at the origin is someone that's, that's who you really are. And then it gets alienated. It gets lost through repression or whatever. And I think like the, the whole American line of thinking, like the behavioralist line of thinking or the ego psychology line of thinking, like all those positions think that you're just identical with yourself. And so if you get driven to act in a certain way, that's the way you're going to act. Or if you if your ego pushes you in a certain way, that's who you you're, you're finally reducible to your ego. And I think Sartre's very good as one corrective i mean i think lacan and sartre are not that far apart i think on a lot of these questions because i think both for both of them this fundamental divide of subjectivity is the crucial is the crucial thing and and that i think gives the lie to all those like both the determinist reading of you know pierre bourdieu in france but also like rogers in america and then also the other like uh you know just self development of the romantic, you know, I'm going to develop my ego and and I'm going to I'm going to get rid of all these things that are covering it over and 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 let the true me come out. Like I think, if if the true you is divided, then there is no true you to be found, right? And so that's that has to be that 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 whole project is is undermined from the beginning. I think. I did have one. If we want to talk about authenticity, it's more of a way of affirming your contradiction it's 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 finding a a way of life wherein you can in a sense affirm and positively live through your contradiction absolutely absolutely andrew uh i did have one more question and this was uh pertaining to what catrone said about you and it was when uh dave was bringing up uh it, it had to deal with the discussion of the dialectic and um he said that with your project on Hegel, um, it was like, what do you think of, of, of Todd McGowan's project on Hegel, which Hegel is a, a thinker of contradiction rather than totalization and synthesis. And his response was really bold and and, and he never really backed up the claim, but it's like, yeah, that's all fine. But you would, in order for Hegel to be a, a thinker of contradiction, you'd have to have a lot of presuppositions to uh, agree upon for that to happen. And you know, he didn't bring anything to like, uh, like, iterate on that. And I just want to know your thoughts on, on that. And and what is? Yeah, he- I just what, what it, I I mean what what I would say is that it's Hegel's looking, and this is what I like about him, right? Like he doesn't he doesn't have a p- political project that he's trying to advance and say everyone should do this. Instead, he's like, what is the structure of things and then how do we work back from that to see what has to have been operative and then what has to be ontologically true from where we are now so that we can make sense of how we got here and so when i say hegel's a thinker of contradiction what i mean is he looks at the structure of 
like language, society, history, aesthetics even, and says, well, every time you think through a certain problem, you end up in a contradiction. And then so for him, and I, I thought his point about Kant was really good, and I would even just take this further, like for Hegel, the Kantian antinomies are absolutely decisive, right? Like this notion that if we try to think through the ultimate problems of the universe, we run into antinomies that are insoluble. And so Hegel's like, and, and so then Kant says, well, then our thought must be wrong. And Hegel says, well, no, maybe it's the opposite. Like how there must be some reason why we can't solve these problems, right? And so Hegel takes from our inability to solve the problems, the fact that we always end up in certain contradictions. He, he believes that that must be, there must be some contradictory structure to the world that inhibits us from solving those problems in thought because if we could if 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 that weren't true then we would be able to like our weaknesses have to have a cause in the world that's his i that's his thinking and so it's it's not just the i don't think it's just the presupposition or the assumption of contradiction instead it's the Oh, what's the structure of things? And then how do we, how, how, if we look at what the structure of things is, and every time we try to solve problems, we run into contradiction, there must be something that drives that, right? And so that, and that's what I find so utterly convincing about Hegel and why I'm not a follower of this idea of that the, there's just a, there's a multiplicity of everything, right? And, and that, and, the, and there's these different multiples and they 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 don't really connect with each other. This would be a Deleuzian, yeah, Deleuzian image of the world, right? And so I think you kind of have to decide between Deleuze and Hegel. And and I think I don't think Deleuze has a way to explain the necessity of contradiction in the way that Hegel does. That's that. And, and that's the only reason why I'm not Deleuzean, actually. So I think that and I, I so I don't think it's an assumption. I think it's like you can really I think he's really. Uh, argue, proving it, really. I, Trey, were you going to say something? Yeah, I just wanted to say a couple. So um, I, I, I kind of wanted to give uh, Mikey the floor just for a minute to say something about in, in defense of Deleuze. But before, you know, because I, I, he said something earlier that I was just like, that's really good, you know. But but, but really quick, I mean, and this is this is actually a little, I mean, maybe this won't be quick. The ideology ideology you know how we talk you know Zizek is so important for for ideology and and understanding it and and uh andrew mentioned that he goes beyond you know the the, the traditional marxist one then the althusserian twist twist on it you know reinserts the subject into it but, but it's the split subject you know but um i wanted to bring it back to the workplace and talk about how inherent transgression in particular and mikey you know you, i know you will have some thoughts on that but uh, the thing I want to say about it is that um, bringing it back to the difference between uh, working in a warehouse, I'm an Amazon warehouse worker now, um, but I've also worked in construction, like five areas of construction, and I've worked in food service and grocery stores and gas stations. So it's like, um, I would say my experience of the construction to kind of warehouse work versus the academic scene, because I was also an adjunct for three years. Um, is the, the 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 fundamental difference is in the academic scene everyone's uh, trying really hard not to say the wrong thing um, and you know this political correctness basically and then in the workplace 
if you don't say something politically incorrect, it has to be the right kind of political incorrectness. And so you have to know your audience. But if you don't say some kind of political incorrectness, then you're not going to be one of them. And so this is, I said to Catron, I said, if you don't understand like a theory of subjectivity and ideology, like you're, you're any t- kind of organizing you try to do with the worker is going to be fucked out the gate. That's how I said it. And then he said, well, I'm trying to talk to intellectuals. I'm talking about intellectuals who just think that all they have to do is read Foucault, Derrida, Zizek, whatever. They think that they don't have to read Marx. And so as a point of emphasis, and you know, he's a Leninist and Leninist, Lenin believed in bending the bow, right? Well, you know, which means that if the tendency is currently in this complete other direction, then you have to overcorrect in the other direction. So I think that, you know, that, that could be even be going on here. But um, just from our standpoint, though, uh, yeah, let's talk about inherent transgression, ideology. You know, of G- uh, Mikey and I have done three parts on Zizek so far on his theory of ideology. It's nine hours. So it's not, you know, there, there's so much that we can get into. But let's just talk about you because you said earlier inherent transgression what is that and and how does how does it factor in is that all that's factoring in when a person kind of has to do something transgressive to be able to be a part of the group or get or get kind of cast as the other or is there is there more going on with political correctness in such situations that's a great question and then trey after that okay um just quickly because i think that isn't the to me the point is that the bond of a group is always and i think the transgression is different so i think even in the university setting there still is the inherent transgression is operative it's just a different one right like it's a different one and like what the transgression is is different but um and sometimes the university can the transgression can actually be hyper correctness which is an interesting idea of how transgression can function but it's still but you feel transgressive relative to the rest of the society and so then it functions the same way i think so i think the point is that there has to be a thing that bonds you that you all feel ashamed of right like that because you're not you can never be bonded by some positive characteristic instead you have to be bonded by something that you all share that you all feel ashamed of and then that shame make is the connection that holds you together. And I, I think one of the ways to think about this is to think about how people that like if you if you if you let's say we go all went to a protest together, right? Like we all felt good about what we did. We were all kind of we thought like, oh that was great. But we would have no bond that held us together. But if we were all let's say all five of us were cops and we went out and we like stole some money we like busted some drug dealers and stole their money i just happened to watch a, the thing by the it's called i think we own the city by the guy that did the wire it's pretty good uh and the cops are doing this kind of thing all the time and and we t- we stuck we would have an incredible bond together right like we would all five of us would feel like we're brothers for life because we committed this transgression that holds us together whereas if we went to the protest together we maybe see each other in the street and say, hey, but we wouldn't feel any bonds. So I think that that the, the shame, the guilt that is that we hold together is the thing that creates the bond because we're held together around this thing that we don't want anyone. No, we can't let anyone else into it. Right. Like if anyone else comes in, then we're all lost. So I think that's the that's the that's the reason why it creates the bond. Trey, you were going to say. 
Um, yeah, uh, actually, this my question was actually on ideology. Uh, I only have one question, and uh, um, it's it's on a different uh, aspect of it, though. Um, and I believe I've heard you somewhere, uh, maybe it was on your podcast, say that if you could define ideology in one sentence, it would be the belief that you can overcome contradictions. Um, and so I was wondering, um, because one of the essential or like big breakthroughs that Zizek made with his idea of uh, ideology in um, 1989 was that um, uh, was the idea of cynicism. And um, really, I don't think you can have an idea of cynicism without subjectivity. Like you just can't think like such an enigmatic thing that you can recognize something and then still do it. Right. Um, uh, You can recognize the whatever contradiction or the or. Yeah. And um, but th- that's kind of where my question is, because um, just to give a concrete example of uh, there's um, it's sort of like on the <laughs> I saw a meme on the Christian Reddit or something where it was like a creationist who made the meme. And the meme was like um, he was like there was one person saying, you believe that the earth is six thousand years old. And then the response to that was just yes. So it's just yes, I do believe that. So it was like. To me, cynicism, part of cynicism is sort of, I, I don't know if this is the right term, but sort of fetishizing your own subjectivity, where it's just like this excess of awareness that, yeah, I know, I do believe that that um, thing that almost every scientist disagrees with, but, you know, I win here because I acknowledged it. So uh, there seems to be a homology here between uh, with that and cynicism, where, yes, you can recognize something. And I've even, I've even seen the exact same meme be used in more... Um, in worse ways with like racist where it's like you believe in something racist and then there's the reply yes i do so i was wondering because i don't seem to remember you talking about cynicism really in emancipation after hegel and but that i guess that wouldn't be the big book on ideology if you have one i'm I'm not sure but where would cynicism fit in with your um your definition of ideology as the belief that you can overcome contradiction, because I think that you can genuinely believe, or maybe not genuine, but you can in a way affirm a contradictory, or that you are contradictory, or um, or that you are bad, or that you are, like, you are racist, for example, and still, even if you, you can do that, but still not go in an emancipatory way, like, you, you can turn, not turn to the leftist uh, perspective, where, so I was wondering, like, where would this idea of being able to recognize, maybe it's a pseudo recognition that you are contradictory or recognize contradiction in a pseudo, um, in, in a false way. How would that fit into your definition of ideology as the belief that you can overcome contradiction and with the implication that to get out of ideology, you need to recognize that you are contradictory? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's really good, Trey. It's a great question. And I think one of the things that I should talk about cynicism more, I mean, I guess I don't because I felt like Slavoj kind of covered it really well, in, especially in the first book. And I didn't know that there was much left to say. But I think on this question, you're right that there is a it seems like there's a lacuna in my way of thinking about that. And I would just say this, that I, I think that this cynicism, one of the things that it does is that it are, it it articulates something that it doesn't unconsciously it's not unconsciously invested in right so so there's a difference between what's consciously avowed and what's unconsciously invested in so the contradiction 
it's a strange thing because the contradiction is consciously avowed, right? Like that's what you're talking about. There's constant, there's a conscious avowal of the contradiction. But what I think is is great about that is that unconsciously, it, there's still this, the, the contradiction is overcome, right? Because you're saying, okay, consciously I have this contradiction between what I believe and what I know, but unconsciously I actually, I'm not really invested in this thing that I say that I accept, right? Like that's the whole point that there's, that you, you know, you, you, you avow something, but you're not invested in the thing that you're avowing. You're actually invested in doing the opposite, right? Like it's that, it's like that, the joke, the joke that both Freud, Lacan, or all Freud, Lacan, and Zizek like to tell about why are you telling me that you're going to Warsaw when you're really going to Warsaw, right? Like the the notion that you're 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 deceiving, like that's what cynicism does. It deceives us by telling the truth about what it wants, and then so it gives us the the image of a contradiction, but underneath that image is this non like this overcoming of contradiction which is why i think cynicism is such a dangerous philosophy i mean i think that it's interesting how when slavoj wrote that book in 1989 i think cynicism he was basically thinking about it as a leftist phenomenon but don't you think today like just the example you gave that's a right wing example of cynicism so it's interesting how it's become ubiquitous across the political spectrum. So I, in a way that I, did, I, I guess I didn't even realize, I thought it was still confined basically to the left, but it seems like it's, it's even a right-wing phenomenon now. I, I would actually say it's primarily a, a right-wing phenomenon now. Interesting. Like it's, yeah. it's um, at, at least online, I would say, and, and with the younger, younger uh, people, for yeah. sure. Uh, yeah, that's all, that's all I had, so. Great, great, thanks. So, well, can I ask? I just got one more question. Sure. Uh, what I would say, because well, it's directly related to cynicism, we'll make sure to okay, get your. Okay. Okay. But the, but for me, as a as a as a, a, a sort of initiate into all of this, um, you know, Lacan, Zizek, you know, for all of us, I guess the young Zizekians, which was going to be in the title of this, I think, you know, on the thumbnail probably. Um, for 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 the. How do you tell the difference? With, okay, so that seems like okay, so it's cynicism, but um, uh, is that uh, separable, or how would you separate that from? It's it's about enjoyment. There's an enjoyment in saying something absurd to people who you don't like, and that unifies the group if they all say the, the same thing. So Mormons with their magical underwear, everyone makes fun of them. Everyone makes fun of them, but guess what? That unifies the in-group, though. They all they all go through this baptism, this ritual of having to get hazed by knocking on people's doors who will make fun of them and, and humiliate them. But that unifies the in-group in a tremendous way. And in a sort of sense, it's a death drive to the larger civic society, right? You are mm -hmm. you are destroying your possibilities at the larger societal level, but that creates that in-group. Uh, experience of jouissance and solidarity at the same time so it does the truth this is where people the rational positivistic type people completely miss subjectivity because it's, it's not you can't talk a person out of that you, right. you try to humiliate or mock somebody i think oh, i've got so many people in mind when i say this because they, they've got this debate mindset where 
they can shame and humiliate and make examples of stupid people who believe stupid things or follow stupid thinkers. And therefore that will make people want to be on their side because they don't want to appear stupid. But it's like, no, I want to appear stupid with my, with my homies. Right? Like yeah. if we all see something absurd and people are like, what the fuck are you talking about? It's like, yeah, you wish you knew. No, it's absolutely true. I mean, I think that, you know, I grew up a fundamentalist Christian and that was, I think that was a huge part of the bond, right? Like the bond was everybody else thinks that this is absurd and we embrace that feel. I mean, we embrace that, that, that notion that everyone else is mocking us and that, that is, that's the thing that holds parts that holds us together. It's tied to the inherent transgression idea. I think. You know, it's funny. I think that's honestly the, the more interesting uh, takeaway from the Noah story. Right. You got eight people, Noah and his family. The whole world is telling him they're absolutely insane. Oh, it's going to rain, whatever that is. Like it, it bonded them together in a profound way because the whole world is against them. And so I don't know. I think in a funny way, that's one of the the actual profound takeaways from the Noah story. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. You were going to say a last question. OK. Yeah. So um Recently, in another discussion Dave had with Chris Catrone, um, there's there's this ongoing discussion on the 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 category of the left, the the signifier of the left. I, I we we call it a quilting point, master signifier, whatever. And Catrone's position is more on the we need you know there is a left. Well, the left is dead. Long live the left. And so even though the left is facing all kinds of issues, right. Um, there's still a defense of the left. Uh, he's he's been on an online debate with a guy named Benedict Crypto Fashion. It, the whole it, it's a whole question of the 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 signifier of the left, and we can also expand it to other traditional leftist signifiers. And it, it's this question of what how should the left talk about itself? What signifier should it use? And uh, real quick, so Mark Fisher says in Capitalist Realism. We are now in a political landscape littered with what Alex Williams called ideological rubble. It is year zero again, and a space has been cleared for a new anti-capitalism to emerge, which is not necessarily tied to the old language or traditions. The question is, should the American left or an American left that's a new form of anti-capitalism, should we stick with traditional signifiers like socialism, communism, Marxism, or should we seek out new quilting points, new master? And there I'm using them interchangeably, but I know that you did a, a, a podcast episode on a signifier for the left. So I just would love to hear what you have to say on that one. Yeah, I don't, that's a good question. I, you know, I go back and forth on this. Like part of me thinks who cares, right? Like who cares? Like let's like this, the struggle is the thing and like whatever the term is, it, it doesn't I'm not sure that it matters so much. Um, but, you know, then I, then I think about this. Do you ever see this movie called The Founder? It's about the guy that founded McDonald's and he his name was Ray Kroc. And uh, it's not a great movie, but it's Michael Keaton plays him. Uh, and and the, he basically steals mcdonald's the restaurant from these two brothers that are mcdonald's and they at the end they're like why did you go through the trouble why didn't you just start your own restaurant and he goes no one would come to eat at crocs 
but everyone would come to eat at McDonald's. And so it makes me think that, yeah, maybe there's something to like what the signifier is, right? Like how do you like, and, and it's almost an aesthetic question. And I do think like communism, I know that Slavoj and, and Alain Badu are very invested in that as a signifier and they're very against socialism as a signifier. But I don't know. I mean, I don't, I, I'm not sure that either of those is the signifier. You know, like I, I kind of, my own, the one I like is egalitarianism, but that's maybe a little too unwieldy. So I, I don't know, but I do think it's an aesthetic thing, right? Like it's a, it's a, it's, it's not so much what the signifier means because it will come to mean what people make it mean, right? Like communism has come to mean, you know, Stalin and and things like that, just because that's what people have come to make it mean. So I I don't I just think find a find an attractive signifier. I I don't mind left actually. Like I think left is pretty good. One thing I like about left is it's so arbitrary, right? Like there was this division in the in with the way people sat in the French Parliament and the in the, in the convention, and so that's and so the and, and it wasn't even. What's interesting is. It wasn't even, it was used briefly and then kind of dropped because most of the division was between people sat on high where the mountain and people down on the low where the plain, then the, the radicals were the mountain. And and so left and right didn't, and then it came later. People were like, oh, back in the revolution, left and right. And so, I don't know, I kind of like that because it's both retroactive and it, it's kind of senseless and left can mean just, you know, I also like the way left does it. It means it's like the hand not that many people use, and there's something to that. I, I don't know. I, I'm not. This is not a good answer, but I think that there. I don't. I mean, I don't think it's. I don't. I don't. I think it's worth thinking about and trying to invent something good. But I also don't think it's necessarily. It, it will come to mean what people make it mean. You know. Okay. I just want to say is the yeah so actually you kind of said something similar to what Catrone said in that conversation, which is that the the signifier is somewhat arbitrary. We can make it mean what we want to make it mean, and for me, I think that speaks to and I'm not saying that you're saying exactly the same thing, but that that comes back to the theory of subjectivity. Mikey talked about this a little bit in the stream that we did on I think it was called "Don't Tell Us Who to Read," and you know we. The the thing is, is like that signifier has a history that's been interpreted by different people in different ways, but it, it's not about hermeneutics at the end of the day. It's about libidinal economy. And some people have been persecuted by that signifier. Uh, Trey had to announce himself at the beginning as non-political because it, obviously the, the left is such a master signifier for so many people in this conversation. It is necessarily excluding people. You said it's arbitrary. Well, it's arbitrary because, you know, you, oh, it's left. Well, it assumes a right. And it assumes that the right is the enemy. And the, you said that the left can't have an enemy. So I, I, th that's, I guess, my concern. I, I'm not going to say I'm, I'm, I'm in a, oh, I don't use this, this signifier anymore. But I want it to be a problem that we take seriously and, like, have to – wrestle with um and at least i'm in a, pe a period of moratorium this is my struggle is to think yeah, about I, how, I, I, how is this I, master signifier quilted all of my other meanings and then how and then this is my i'll turn this into a question 
how does um, how might enjoyment factor in speaking of libidinal economy for people who just want to be lefter than thou? So, you know, platypus affiliated society. I, I, I suspect there's a large number of people there who are getting enjoyment telling progressives the left is dead and actually you're not reading the right books and you know you're not actually progressive because I've you know I am lefter than thou so and I'll just leave it at that yeah 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 that's a that's a huge problem I think right like you can't I think that one of the things you said is really crucial that if left uh has something that it poses as the enemy then it's not left right like it can't then it can't be left then it's then it's it becomes rightist and i think that's a huge problem and i think also this desire to be pure always be pure is a and again that kind of comes back to what we've been talking about for a long time about forgetting about subjectivity because subjectivity is impurity and so this desire to be pure i'm the pure left and not these other people i think that's a whole other problem i mean I kind of like the term emancipation. That's a that's a that's a word I I'm rarely I'm drawn to quite a bit, and I think a lot of people can get behind it and without feeling oppressed by it. I don't know, but yeah, it's a it's a it's a hard question. I should probably go to bed. So <laughs> I, I'm gonna I'm gonna. Uh, this is you, you've got to wake up super early. So does Andrew. Yeah. You're all you're all way more east in the country than I am or than Trey I mean, is. I'm Virginia, so <laughs> yeah, I know. I can see that's still light there. It's certainly not light where Andrew. Yeah. Tom, yeah, thank you so I'm, much for this. Yeah. yeah thank Thanks, Scott. For, it's, it's been really you. great. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure yeah. to meet you, Todd. Yeah, Andrew, great to see you, and great to see the rest of you again. Right. And Dave, great to see you. Yeah. Take care. Take care. Nice okay. See ya. Bye. Um. And so, uh, as as Todd signs off here, I want to give other people an opportunity to close out. Andrew left because he's got to get up super early. Um, but I've got to walk back to the computer before I can stop recording anyway. This was pretty cool, this experiment of going outside. Yeah. I'm so glad so, you got to join us, Trey. That was great to have you. And like, I, it just, if you know how hard this would have been if we all tried to plan this? Like, it, it's, it almost had like a certain magic to it that it just, yeah, easily. Yeah. That, that, yeah, it was a last minute thing. Uh, at least for me, uh, I don't believe uh, me, uh, message me like just just today. But uh, yeah, I'm glad it worked out. Um, uh, yeah, I, I feel like we needed to do this, like the response to uh, yesterday's live stream. And uh, I think we covered pretty much everything. Uh, yeah, we did. So, yeah, we got to a lot of key issues there. Hey, like because these people, I've heard them all say, oh, yeah, well, Heidegger just thinks we need to talk about being and it's just a fundamental ontology. And they kind of say that like an eye roll. And they said we could just dis dispose with Deleuze. And earlier, Todd you said, about that. Like, and Todd said, you know, you know, he'll take Lacan over Deleuze. But yeah, there's something to Deleuze that you don't have to. What, what is it? Why do you care? What, what, what is it about Deleuze for well, you? I mean, first off, he's a, a, a genius, a philosophical genius. Um, difference in repetition. It, at least, I mean, in my opinion, is one of the single greatest works of metaphysics in the entire history of philosophy. And by greatest, I mean original. Like hmm. Deleuze, what he do, does there, okay, so he's drawn on Spinoza, he's drawn on Nietzsche, um, Bergsong, right? These are his big three. And then 
a little bit of Dun Scotus, but it's a it's a singular work of metaphysics. And so here's the funny thing, right? I'm some kind of Zizekian, Lacanian, Magawi, right? I'm in this. I'm on that side because I've worked through D and G, and I on certain fundamental questions, fundamental issues, I'm more of a Lacanian, Hegelian, whatever. It doesn't change the fact that I think that when it comes to what they were, that they're they're brilliant, they're genius, and I don't think anything Deleuze did you can just reduce to anybody who came before him. So, for example, right throughout the history of philosophy, philosophy or philosophers have tended in metaphysics to make a, a, a two twofold distinction between possibility and actuality. That there's there's things that are possible, there's things that are actual. Well. The problem is philosophers never explain how the possible can become actualized. There's like this ontological gulf between possibility and actuality. What Deleuze does, in my opinion, is give the greatest metaphysical account of how possibilities or potentialities get actualized. And it's through his introduction of pure difference, which of course... I know how confusing the term is. I, I I do think it's one of the most confusing terms in philosophy because uh, the whole point, and he knows this, right? And differences, as we usually talk about it, are differences between things. So this lamp is red, this yeah. lamp is blue. The difference between them is anchored in their specific qualities or identities, right? Well, what he ends up doing is he understands that there's a certain field of intensities and what he also calls virtualities so look for Deleuze there's the virtual there's the intensive and then there's the actual or the extensive as he also calls it and so for him virtualities are what we would just call potentialities right but he doesn't want to call them possibilities because it's in this whole philosophical tradition that can't explain how the possible becomes the actual and, and what you have when you make that distinction and you don't have any bridge between the possible and the actual you great you kind of create an ontological dualism like you have the, the possible and the actual but they don't they, how do they interact it's almost the cartesian problem how does soul and body interact here and what deleuze does is he goes okay what what is traditionally called possibilities i'm going to call them virtualities or potentialities right and I'm I'm gonna find the way to show how it's all within one field of eminence, right? There's no ontological split um, that puts possibility in one region of being and actuality in another. It's it's they're all in the same field, right? And so the virtual are those potentials, the, the things that things that can be actualized, things that can undergo uh, transitions, right? And then there's intensity. Now, intensity is fundamentally important to Deleuze's ontology because it's through intensity, it's this third category, virtual, intensive, actual. The intensive is how you get the virtual actualized, right? right. And so Deleuze is working out in difference and repetition how actual things get actualized. And um, a friend of mine from a long time ago, his name's Brendan, he uh, he came up with a great example when he and I were studying uh, uh, Deleuze. And the windshield. 
Yeah, Brent, Brent, yeah I, I still call it Brendan's uh, windshield or uh, the crack pattern, right? So if you throw a rock at a window, it's going to, a crack pattern is going to emerge, right? And the specific crack pattern, it's, it, there's so many variables that depend on that crack pattern as a virtual potential being pulled into actuality, but it's through the pressure, the point at which the pressure interacts with the window that that potential crack pattern that's there, it's there as a virtual potential, gets pulled into actuality. If the rock hits the window at a tightly, uh, slightly different position, or if the pressure of the rock is slightly more intense, you get a different crack pattern that's actualized. And as simple as that is, Deleuze is the first philosopher I know that really figured out like intensity is a transcendental condition of experience. Now, think about it. We're, we're, think about each look around the room you're in. Think if the temperature goes up 5,000 degrees right now. These actualities go away. These actualities depend on a field of intensity. Another example I really love that is we all can understand popcorn popping popcorn what do you do when you want to pop popcorn you put it in a, a specific field of intensities you put it in a microwave or you, you know you uh, pop it on the stove but most of us use a microwave the microwave is a field of intensity and you have popcorn kernels if you put them under the right intensive uh, the right you put them in the right intensive field those the, you know they pop and and, and become popcorn and you pull a virtual potential out of the popcorn kernel and you pop it into popcorn thanks to it being placed in a field of intensities. And so these very simple everyday examples are great examples of Deleuzian metaphysics as a kind of process ontology. And like you'll get from analytic philosophers like uh, Von uh, uh, wagon whatever that guy's name is i forget off the top of my head but you know but the goldilocks conditions and the the factors that create the goldilocks conditions that an, that on earth like ours and humans like us could could exist in right and they'll right. talk about these kinds of things but you're right they don't get into that um and but uh, more importantly you know so katron had also talked about well just recon just if you're he said he said don't with Deleuze, he said don't waste your life but if you're go but actually go ahead if you want to but but go for the high tier shit that old barrel. Don't go for the malt liquor first. First of all, I only drink Mickey's. I can't afford the cans. I drink so much they call me Charlie Forty Hands. Um, and the, I always drank Mickey's back when I used to drink, and that was a line that we used to always sing. Um, but no, but even 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 though it's a little white trash to drink some some Mickey's or whatever. Um, uh, Kant. Uh, we 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 love Kant. We don't disrespect Kant. None of us do. And we all think that you have to read Kant. It's not a, oh, either I mean, or. Kantian term in philosophy. I mean, Kant's one of the greatest minds that ever lived. Right. Plato, Aristotle, Kant, Hegel. Right. Like. But you you did something. We took this difference in repetition course uh, with Levi Bryant uh, through the New Center for Research and Practice, and it was a really cool experience. Right. And. Right. I, I've taken some courses there that I thought were nee. Then that one was I thought I learned a lot. And and you wrote something that was epic. And so, um, and and it's a fundamental critique of of Kant using using Deleuze. Right. So I this is one of my early essays that I'm still really proud of, and I think I 
I still stand by this argument. Um, if I was to write it now, obviously it'd be a, a different essay, but uh, the overarching argument I think is I, I hold by it, uh, stand by. So it, 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 I mean, I'm gonna throw in some stuff that I didn't, I, I don't think is in the essay, but just for, nice. for the sake of clarification. Okay, Deleuze talks, Kant's famous for transcendental idealism, which is to say, there are certain, by transcendental, he, he's referring to the conditions of the possibility of experience, right? Those structural formal categories or operations that form experience into the intersubjective trans-individual experience we all have, right? Which is to say, we all organize our sense data through the principle of causality, right? We can't have meaningful experience without causality. We can't have meaningful experience, even if at a metaphysical level, we challenge substance ontology. Kant's saying, look, this schema between the thing and its qualities, right? It's, it's essential to human experience. So Kant's working through, which is basically the Aristotelian categories that um, Aristotle's categories, and he adds in a couple others, whatever. But he, he's saying these categories are structures of the mind that impose themselves on sense data and organize experience into a coherent, consistent flow, right? Like that. I like how, uh, uh, is it Lee Braver uses the example in the introduction to his, his history on, on, on using, um, yeah. Yeah. And, and he says that it's like the factory, these categories form like the factory of the mind that produces the product that's perceived. Right. That's not to say it's all an illusion, but the thing is, is it is organized. And, and obviously, if you mess with psychedelics or if you've ever been through any kind of experience that alters experience, then, you know, the mind has a lot of control over things. And so it definitely does sort things into the way it seems for us. Right. Absolutely. So so and that's the, and it's not an illusion. Kant's way around this is saying these are a priori structures we all share. So all of us. All of our experiences are organized around it. So it's not my, it's like an illusion would be if I was the only one doing this, right? Like, no, all of our minds organize experience in the same a priori synthetic way, right? Okay, so you have the you have the 12 categories for Kant, which makes it multiplicity, uh, plurality. Like we, we see things as like, okay, there's, there's we can view a, a lamp as one thing. Uh, we, can, we can view it as made up of parts. But then we can also view it as a multiplicity, as a unity of parts, right? This is essential to us organizing basic human experience, right? And of course, the, the two big ones for Kant are time and space, right? Here's the point, that Kant's the first thinker in history to say, what are we actively contributing to experience that make it what it is, right? Before this, you have this kind of passive subject for philosophy that I just passively receive the world as it is. It's a kind of naive realism. And what Kant does that that is arguably the most important philosophical intervention in the history of philosophy is to say, what are we, how do we, how are we active in the constitution of our experience, right? What are we bringing to it? And for him, he, he thinks he can solve all kinds of different problems. So he, he can solve Hume's problem of causality, all of this. Of course, this leads to the problem of the thing in itself, but okay, this is getting off the point, right? This, we're talking Deleuze. So 
the point is with Kant, transcendental idealism, the idealism refers to the activity of the mind. The transcendental part of that refers to those conditions of experience that the mind is actively operating, you know, setting the setting confines within that. which the the confines within which the mind is functioning, right? Right. Right. Now, of course, different Kantians will argue like, oh, well, what are you saying? That the principle of causality only is something we impose on experience. So if there's no human beings, there's no cause and effect going on in the universe. This is a whole issue like with Mayasu and correlationism, right? And some Kantians would even say, no, causality actually is, it functions out there in the universe. We can even, we can posit that it does so, which is, uh, it is saying something about the thing in itself. But the point is, the, the deeper point for a Kantian is that, okay, whether or not causality is effective in things in themselves is, is one thing. The point is we can't have coherent experience without our minds using the category of causality. So right. regardless of where, if it's only reducible to our mental apparatus or if it's in things in themselves, that's another question. Point is we have to have it to have the shared experience that we have, right? So it's a transcendental condition um, of our experience. Now, here's the, the profound Deleuzian twist. Deleuze talks about transcendental empiricism. And to a Kantian, that's oxymoronic. Because the point is the empirical field, that's not the transcendental. The, the whole point is you have the transcendental, which are the formal categories, the formal mechanisms, the structure of experience, right? But but the content of experience would be out in the empirical field, right? So to talk about transcendental empiricism appears to be an oxymoron to a, to your average Kantian. To say it doesn't make any sense. Deleuze's point is that the transcendental conditions of experience. Think about again. We go. We, we're sitting here. We're looking around our rooms. If you do the, the thought experiment, if it goes up 5,000 degrees, 10,000 degrees, we're not having experience anymore, right? If the intensity, if the field of intensities is drastically different, and it doesn't even have to be that drastically different, right? Uh, 100 degrees. I mean, everything changes, right? And so you think about the conditions Earth has to be in, in relation to the sun, to give rise to organic beings that can have experiences like we have. Our, our eyes, our ears, they cannot exist in certain fields of intensity. We're not going to have experience if you put us on, you know, too close to the sun or too far away from the sun. And so seeing how these fields of intensities structure the very actualization of beings, you start to go, okay, the transcendental conditions of experience. Experience is had by certain beings, right? For us to have experience, we have to be in an, an intensive sweet spot, so to speak. And so the very transcendental conditions, the, the conditions of possibility of experience are actually out there in the empirical field, which is to say out there in the world, right? They're not intensity, uh, temperature and all the, these are not being imposed by our minds. They're out there in the world, in the empirical field. And yet, nonetheless, they are the conditions of our experience. So this is, I mean, again, I think the, the introduction and, and the development of the concept of intensity as an ontological category, show me, show me who did that. I mean, yes, the, 
Deleuze is inspired by Nietzsche and Bergson and Spinoza. Spinoza's maybe the biggest influence because Spinoza's talking about basically a field of pure imminence like that Deleuze is developing. But the point is, the way Deleuze is drawn on differential calculus, right? He's drawn on the sciences to give a metaphysics of science, in a, so to speak. You're, it's it's a singularity in the history of thought, and so um, I, I for me, I don't. Yeah, I, I'm I'm working in this Lacanian Hegelian area, but that does not stop me from seeing this immense intervention Deleuze made in the history of thought. I mean, it's absolutely brilliant. And I would just say that all of the thinkers of May '68 were focusing on what what reproduces society. Why do why why after the revolutionary moment do things go back to the same shitty existence that was prior to it, right? The, the same shitty existence that the left and right were both upset with is what people end up back in. And so uh, they were focusing on reproduction. So in, you know, 1970, you've got LCC's got his whole, like, uh, uh, you know, ideological state apparatus piece. And that's that's all about social reproduction. And then you've got, um, and you know, and, and the role of ideology and the professional manager of class and the schooling system and all of these things. And 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 uh, then you've got you know Bordeaux you know who was mentioned earlier and his reproduction and education in 1971, and so they're all kind of thinking about reproduction and and then you know Badu's running in and literally canceling Deleuze and shouting him down with his students like oh you're a fascist because you're doing metaphysics because for the communists especially for Stalin especially for uh, Mao. Um, anything that's not Marxism is metaphysics, and metaphysics is necessarily reactionary, hairy brain bullshit. And Deleuze held his ground and never stopped. But here's the thing: what's he thinking about? He's not just thinking about, well, why do we keep reproducing the same society? Yeah, that's important. But he's, he's also thinking how physical objects come into being. Yeah. First of all, how physical objects come into being, but also he's getting us out of this this state ideological version of Stalinist. This was the most widespread short course. Remember, the short course is the most read thing in the in the the, the, the Soviet controlled world, um, and it's and the the most read part of that is, is the historical and dialectical materialism, and this is like the most dogmatic and simplified version of anything having to do with dialectics that's ever been written. It's very accessible to its credit, but obviously. Um, it's insanely dogmatic, and it's like the whole world's led up to this moment. The party's been playing the playing. It's got the the party's got all the secrets, and it knows the secret of the universe, and it's doing all the things. Well, anyway, the thing I want to say about dialectics, though, yeah, no, it, it, it's the big other. The you had really, other. you had a really good response to it earlier, and if we at least have ten more minutes, there's two things I want to touch on. One is you know the dialectics of the days. Uh, their idea of how things come into being is just quantitative. Changes lead to qualitative changes. Okay. Oh, yeah, we talked about that earlier. So I mean, think. I mean, one way is it's what the Sorites paradox or something. Okay, it's the example. You take grains of sand and you start throwing grains of sand on a table. Okay. At some point, that quantity takes on a new quality. It becomes a pile of sand. Okay. Now the question is, when, at what precise grain of sand do you go from having a bunch of grains of sand to having a pile of sand? Okay, it's it's this this issue of how quantitative increases give rise to qualitative differences. The point is the Deleuzian point is how'd you get the grains of sand to begin with, right? Like it still doesn't get out of the fact that 
if if you're only thinking of 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 becoming in terms of quantity and quality, you're still missing the category of the intensity. And and therefore, they, I mean, both think about it: the grains of sand and the pile of sand. You're dealing with actualities taking on a new qualitative state as a pile, right? But both are actualities. The point is, where how do you get actualities to begin with, right? And the, the, the that's the delusion insight is you virtual intensive actual. And where does where does pure difference fit fit into this? Would the intensive be the pure difference? Like I've honestly I've barely read Deleuze and I never under you mentioned how hard like, pure, pure differences like I like difference in itself. I was like and then I'm like, oh Deleuze has an example of it. And in the book it was like the the lightning flash against the background of the sky, something like that. And I'm like, oh okay, I, I still don't get it. And then so yeah, I'm just like, did I. <laughs> so like what what at where does like um this might just be a very elementary question, but where does pure difference fit into this? Because it doesn't no, base it all on pure difference. No, it's the okay. question. So here's here's what's strange about it, Trey. Um, a lot of Deleuzeans, they they they're quick to emphasize how Deleuze and Guattari, when they they start doing their team up works, they're not when it when it comes to how they think about signs and language, they're not so Surian. And they draw from different different theorists, um, different linguists than so sir. But I, I would just I I think that the Deleuzian insight of pure difference, it is inspired by so sir, even if he doesn't give them the credit for whatever reason, maybe it's because I mean so sir was so influential on everybody else in France. I, I, part of it I think it might be, oh well, let's just down we're going to use other linguists just to be different right um yeah deluso guitarians might give me shit for that but look think about so sir right you take the statement um i like heidegger's being in time okay you can only actualize that statement you can only speak it based on all of these differential relations in language right those signifiers or those signs mean what they mean only through not being other signs in English, right? They also only mean what they mean by the grammatical structure of the sentence. And, and so all of these linguistic structures uh, factor in to that one sentence having meaning, right? Um, the actualization of the, the statement, I like Heidegger's being in time. So there's a whole vast background network of virtual relationships that make that actual statement possible. I think that's what we're getting at with Deleuze. It's not, it's not about language so much as it's the type of, so virtualities would be pure differences, right? Um, the crack pattern that can emerge through the window. Scientists would have all kinds of ways of like trying to diagram or map out the virtual, the, you know, the virtualities that are tucked away within the, the window. And then if you talk about how, you know, the intensity of it, then you get into differential calculus. And when you get into the differential, you realize it's a pure difference. It's not a difference between things. And this is where it's, it's, it's simply, it's hard shit to think about. It is, um, there's no way around it. But I think using so sir, as I mean, it's almost like Wittgenstein's ladder maybe, 
where you use so sir and you 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 because it's easier to understand what language we we can intuitively understand like words don't have pure meanings in and of themselves they have meanings based on their position in language right if you take that and apply that to objects and realize okay there's these virtual structures and these intensive structures that are differential it's based on that that a certain thing can be individualized as a uh, or actualized as an individual being right and he think he he's basically trying to in scientific language and in, in terms of calculus and all this trying to think about this reservoir of potential that he he wants to think of it almost in Saussurean terms as pure relationships networks of differential possibilities right and i mean when you think about it the crack pattern that emerged like it only is that crack pattern by not being the other crack and, and look okay using not he doesn't want negation to factor into this right but yeah. it, it's this point that this virtual network based on its its different potentials within it right certain intensive situations and then actually the, the actualities that come to bear on them he's trying to explain how virtual things become actualized just like how the 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 actual statement i like heidegger's being time presupposes this whole virtual background uh, uh linguistic background for it to be actualized and so again i, I kind of take it as wittgenstein's ladder where i i just think it's so sir that can get us thinking along the lines that deleuze wants us to think now i mean i've, I've had this discussion with deleuzeans a lot now one of the problems is okay so a tornado like i i live in missouri right like i live in tornado alley so somebody says okay well explain to me because this is what we want as theorists or philosophers or whatever right we want so, we want a good example so somebody says all right mikey i i i, I see what you're saying now ex give me tell me what the virtual the virtuality side of the tornado is tell me what the intensive like you need an actual scientist to start talking about this shit i bet you need a meteorologist to come in and start talking about how you know wind patterns and how that affects you know the earth and all, all of these complicated dynamics you need a meteorologist and that's for the specific object right like so if that if we're talking about a tornado you, you need a meteorologist like how popcorn pops in a microwave you need another scientist for that um you know how snowflakes get you know come into being you need okay you need certain temperatures the what Deleuze is doing though is he's trying to give a general metaphysics for all of these like what we particular scientific phenomena right and so that's what gets hard, difficult about it is because you're trying to get some sort of image in your mind of how all this works and that's precisely what he wants to critique is the dogmatic image of thought where thought really only thinks in terms of actual i was waiting i was waiting for you to say it this whole time so i was just like yeah, yeah okay thank so, you so we you know chapter three is this really classic bit of writing i mean even in a the book as a whole is classic but the chapter three is the the most famous probably because it's the most under easily understood and he's trying to say that western philosophy one of its one of philosophy's doxic principle like 
philosophy is the critique of doxa, common sense. But then Deleuze is going to say, yeah, but philosophy itself has its own doxa. It has its own common sense that it doesn't critique. And there's categories of representation, right? Which I don't want to go into the details because that takes too long. But the point is, he's trying to say that the mind conceptualizes things or represents things in very specific ways that leave out these kind of fields of pure differences, right? So we start with some kind of representational schema that really lends itself to substance ontology. Like Nietzsche talked about how um, substance ontology is really based on the subject predicate schema in language, right? So as a good student of Nietzsche, Deleuze is following this line of thought, but really radicalizing it. Well, um, you can only you can only think in terms of identity, right? Like that would be his point. Idea, yeah. Okay. But but Deleuze is trying to get us to think in terms of pure differences, which yeah. is mind-numbing. <laughs> I mean, I still like I'm not saying when it comes to the you know trying to think these virtualities like it's easy. Like I I have to infer my way to them. I because the point is you can't have an image, and if you if you generate an image like some sort of scientific diagram that would try to represent in some sort of imagistic way virtualities or intensities, the whole point is they're not imagistic, right? So you're, you're already falling into a trap. So you, you would have to use that image as a tool. Again, like Wittgenstein's ladder, you climb up it, but then you kick it away once, you, once you've used it. Um, and so, what he tries to do is he goes through the, these different principles. So recognition, the concept, identity, like, you know, a thing is, it's, it's you know, it's qualitative predicates, right? It has a, a certain identity. And difference, th- therefore, is uh, almost a kind of epiphenomenon. Like you have identities or pure actualities. They are what they are in and of themselves. And then differences is, comes through comparison between them. But that's what he wants us to get outside. He, he wants us to think in terms of differentials or becomings or, um, yeah, pure difference. And, yeah, it, it, it is. It's very, I, I do, I think it's very difficult. But I also, the, the bit that I've understood of it, 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 it changes how I think about metaphysics as just how do physical objects like trees, dogs, human being how do we get actualized um and, and i mean think about like em- embryology and all of this like um you think about all of these you know for for any biological life form to be actualized all of these intensive processes proteins and all all of these things if there's too many pro if the rate of flow of the protein is too much or under too much all of it has effects on what gets actualized and right. so whether we're talking about temperatures or pressure or rates of flow um all of these are in are necessary con- transcendental conditions of actualizing a specific thing and you know I, again i i wish i had a I, you know i was i had a mind that would like i have trouble with science i do i like trying to follow a lot of that is difficult for me and i think it really, really helps to be able to follow that um, in understanding to lose. But it's also important to realize 
he's not a scientist. He's not doing science. He's doing a metaphysics for modern science. And it is, he wants us to be able to think all of this stuff uh, without having to go do scientific experiments or learn, like have a meteorologist explain to us all of the science that goes into the, the, the actualization of a tornado. But it is, it's, it's, it, when, you, when you hear this stuff, the first thing you want is like, lay out an example. Give me a, an example of something. But again, the example is as simple as taking a bag of popcorn putting them in a microwave, popping them, and then eating popcorn. Like, try to eat the kernels. They're not going to – the flavor, everything, the experience of popcorn as we eat it isn't in the kernel. You have to pop it. To pop it, you have to put it through a field of intensity. So, like I said, I wish I, I – this is one of these things. This is why I don't really write about trying to explain difference in repetition because I feel like I would need a much – like I, I would, it's like, I need a scientist to help me like to, right. help me but I will say this to go back because Dave, you mentioned it. So the essay I wrote, yeah, um, it, it was, it was my, um, it was my, God, what was it called? Like, like the essay I had to write to get my graduate certificate from the new center for research and practice. This was my big project. And it, it's very simple. It's just Kant's, Kant's critical philosophy, which is to say the work he's doing in critique of pure reason, there's no way for the Deleuzian concept of intensity to fit within that framework, that there's no place, intensity as Deleuze thinks it, it can't be a representation, it can't be in the phenomenal field, right, it's not phenomenal in the, in the Kantian sense, because Kant's phenomena are all structured by the Aristotelian categories, which fit, they, they are the dogmatic image of thought. So you can't place intensity in phenomena and you can't place them in noumena either. They're not in this other realm. They're here in the empirical field, but they're here in a way that doesn't fit the Kantian categories. And so it's an argument to say there, there's something that Kant's philosophy, um, his, his, his metaphysics or epistemology, whatever we want to call it, cannot incorporate, and it's Deleuzian pure difference, Deleuzian intensity. You nailed it. And the fact is, is this has been a killer stream uh, or a conversation, and uh, I, we can't go too long. And I, I know, but hey, the people who had to wake yeah, up. I, I, I have Stranger Things to watch, Dave. It's I know, I know, I know. But there's two things that I have to say. The, the one, the people who had to get up at 530 and 6, they, they, they're out. And we, we're about to have dinner and finish the first X-Men movie. So, but here's the thing. I also don't get to stream with you again in the near foreseeable future. I and I, cause with this Amazon job, it's going to be killing me. It's a graveyard shift. It's all of my weekends. Fair enough. Me with my job, like us figuring out when to stream. So, you know, but I mean, I know I told everybody I want at least the fourth installment of, of our series and Trey, like I, I we're going to make that happen. We're going to, we're going to have our discussion sometime soon. Hit me up. We'll figure out when to do well, it. Now. Well, in one dime, one, di one dime was just messaging me because he was going to be a part of this conversation, or at least I'd invited him. And, uh, and, and by the time I saw his messages, it was too late and now he's going to bed. But, um, cause I think he's on the East coast as well. But, um, here's the thing though. Uh, he wants, he wants to talk to us about Lacan and Jijic and stuff like that as well. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a bummer. He wasn't able to make it in here. Same with Epoch. Um, but here's the thing. We've done this. I would say that this is the definitive video on the internet 
once it's uploaded. This is the definitive inter internet video that anybody's able to share with anybody who's saying this stuff in the future. Therefore, and also because this Amazon job, we have to say a thing about being. And I know it could go oh, on for an God. hour. You're going to make me do this. Come on. I know it could go on for an hour, but here's the thing. You, you just went through all this stuff with Deliz and it's like, Every time I hear it, it's beneficial for me. I could I could listen to it on repeat and it would just be great. But you've got some shit to say about being too. Now I just did this this uh, oh, lecture yeah, on a blog post on it. I just did a lecture on being in time, uh, why I care about the book. Here's that, the thing. everybody that's Dave's way of saying shut the fuck up, you're gonna talk about being for a minute. Yeah, because I just did my lecture on it. Trey's been putting out for the patrons, but also there's a few on the channel. Like he's taking his time with being in time, working through it for the first time. And he and I are going to have a conversation about it in the near okay, future. Okay, want to talk about let, Just let me start. Come on. All right. Please Heidegger, go. What does Heidegger mean by being, right? Like, that's the huge question and which the vast majority of Heideggerians will never get around to answering. They'll, they, they'll say being... 14 times per sentence, but they won't tell you what the fuck they're talking about. Okay, so before I was, I mean, this goes into my history of developing as a thinker. Um, the The first philosopher I truly, truly loved was Kierkegaard. Um, and then, I, you know, for a long time, I was into existentialism, Sartre, Nietzsche. You know, this is very common. A lot of us start off Although I will say the first work of philosophy I worked through and really loved was Descartes' Meditations. I had read some of Plato's dialogues um, before that, but okay. So I, I, I love Kierkegaard. And because I got into existentialism, I believe I had read all of the main existentialists before going to Heidegger. And it was because I could not understand a fucking word in that book. I could not figure out what the hell Dasein was supposed to be or anything. It was... It was a, a long process for me to be able to... It's the uh, being who asked the question. What's so hard about that? Well, and here, so here's the funny thing, right? It took me a long time for me to crack the code. But what I what I, always surprised me is once I did crack the code, it all made... It, it was actually easy for me to understand Heidegger. And I'm not... It wasn't easy for me to understand Baudrillard or Deleuze or Lacan. That shit I had to work for. Once I got tapped into Heidegger's language though, I just had a natural ability to, I, I knew what the guy was talking about somehow. And, and I still don't know why that is, but um, it was also, but the, the, and this, I mentioned my friend earlier, Brendan Holt. Um, he was, he was, uh, he and I, we loved Heidegger and um, Brendan was my first philosophy buddy. Uh, and uh, we, we spent a lot of hours working on Heidegger and Deleuze together. But um, he and I, we really clicked on Heidegger and for whatever reason, we both just naturally picked it up. And a lot of that had to do with Hubert Dreyfus's lecture course and his commentary, Hubert Dreyfus. I mean, that guy, like I, I wouldn't, I mean, he, he Dreyfus unlocks so much for me. Dreyf um, Dreyfus did, Dreyfus did, what Harvey's done, and and, and, and what Todd, I think what Todd's done with Lacan and Zizek. Right. So Dreyfus every year would read Being in Time over again with students, and mm -hmm. the, you know Berkeley's got a lot of analytics, and so he's always having an ongoing kind of argument with them, and popularizing this stuff here uh, in the way that Harvey does Capital every year, right? Mm -hmm. So. 
So, yeah. okay. So Harvey, then, we love us some Dreyfus, and I've had a student, Ian Thompson, on my channel. Ian's, like, I said, like, I always, these Heideggerians, like, uh, I loved Ian's work. I love Mark Raffall. I think I, I've read every famous Heideggerian. I got to give a shout out. So my, I mean, I have a, a profound love and respect for Richard Coppa Bianco. This guy was, Richard was so great to me. He helped me with Heidegger. And so I, I read Dreyfus and worked through a lot of these Heideggerians with Brendan, but um, it, it, Richard when I, when I got introduced to Richard and read his work, I mean, so many things started to click. And it's really Richard's interpretation of Heidegger that helped me have a, a much better understanding of early Heidegger. So Richard is much bigger on later Heidegger. Um, he, and he's, he's unique in this because most Heideggerians are going to talk about being in time. Richard wants to focus on the later stuff, right? So here's what we've got okay and this is going going through i think when heidegger is talking about being given what era he's writing primarily he has three different things in mind and so the heidegger of being in time he even defines being as that on the basis of which beings are intelligible now what he means by this is Dasein, which I'm just going to use human beings primarily, like, okay, I know the Heideggerians will, no, Dasein, you need to use the term, but. Um, okay, actually, I, I, I now like to always say something just for the new people, and that is that phenomenology is never a set in stone thing. That's why it's not a metaphysics. Here's the deal. It's always a method it's always a working through things it's always a bracketing certain things off so certain things can be looked at better it's not and so when people get into arguments over well heidegger really thought this that's like saying that you know you you know michael you really saw this when you've seen a lot of things right so it's just like the, the, obviously there's profound uh questions driving his, his his the entirety of his work like the question of being but the um yeah, I, I, I just it's not a set in stone forever thing, and he and he's very like it's a method, and it's a it's a methodological approach, and he's making methodological uh, assumptions, and you know, and and there's 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 bracketing out of certain things to look at other things, and he thinks he's got reasons to be able to do this, you know, he justifies it or he's like working through that, but the yeah, it's so here's the thing, Dasein is a placeholder for what normally gets filled in. By other ideologies or doxa or philosophers oh it's the rational animal oh it's the you know it's the image you know the human created in the image of god it's the subject the cartesian you know cogito and so all of these things he says i'm going to get rid of them and i'm bracketing them out i'm not going to assume that one is true one's not or that maybe this one gets at something true no we're going to just take a placeholder and the placeholder is the place that normally we would talk about the human. And the thing is, is that placeholder gets rid of questions of individuality. It gets rid of questions of collectivism. It gets rid of question. All of these presuppositions about subject and object. He's saying, no, we're just going to have a placeholder. And what's, what is it? It's the being that is there asking the question. Now, the being that is there asking the question is different than other kinds of beings. It's not the same as God. It's not the same as angels. It's not the same as tools. It's not the same as animals. As a, it, because it's the being that's asking the question in the first place. So obviously well, it has sir, a, it's the being that asks the question about being. What is it to be? What does it mean to be? 
and and the three fundamental questions of philosophy for me, and I obviously a lot of philosophers would agree with this, is just like, what is being? What what is? What does it mean to be? What is being? What's real? Okay, that's one. And then how do we know? That's two. And then how ought we to live? That's three. Right. So so what is being? How do we know what is being? And how should we be being? Right. Yes. But if but if we have conflated six different kinds of being that I just listed off, maybe I listed off five. But if we're conflating gods, angels, animals, um, rocks, trees, tools, we're conflating our categories. We keep using the same fucking equalizer that, that, that correlates all kinds of things and it levels them all as though they're the same fucking thing. And so. That, that's a if people if anybody hears me say that if any fucking Marxist hears me say that if Catron hears me say this when he watches this and you don't think that that's a profound question and problem then come at me I'd love to see it I'd love to see you justify not thinking through that as a fundamental problem that's not worth thinking about shut up and get back to work waste you're wasting your time I'm sorry what I'm wasting my time that's a waste of time. Hell no, that's not a waste of time. All right, so what is being? Okay, so for the Heidegger of being and time, what being essentially is, is our implicit familiarity with entities. Now, it's implicit in the sense that it, he calls it pre-ontological, he calls it pre-theoretical. It's pre-ontological because Dasein, human beings, Primarily and for the most part, he called it proximally and for the most part, but primarily and basically, uh, by and large, when you just look at the phenomenon of, of human beings, right, or, or the, the, the world as we are in it, what you find is that human beings have a implicit know-how when it comes to objects. They, they know how to orient themselves in relation to different types of objects in different ways because they have some tacit familiarity Things have different types of being, right? So, for example, the the three modes of being, as he calls them, in being and time, are Dasein, us, human existence, um, readiness to hand, which has to do with networks of tools, networks of equipment, right? We'll get to that in a second. And then there's present, presence at hand, substance ontologies, essentially. Um, things are individual identities with certain characteristics right okay so if you look at the lamp we can look at the lamp in two ways here we can look at it as an object well as an uh, as an object it has a certain shape it doesn't depend on anything else in the room the lamp could continue to exist without the other objects right we can list its qualities its size its shape all of this right but that's viewing it as a substance or as a present at hand entity that's not how we primarily relate to things. We primarily relate to things as equipment, which now the second we, we do this kind of shift and we start thinking about the lamp as that which gives light, well, the lamp only gives light and only is there to give light because I want to read or it's giving light to books. And so it has a function within me having the ability to read. It can only give light if it's plugged into the wall to the outlet. The outlet can only work if it's, you know, you get into this whole web of relations that, you know, and this is, I mean, his Heidegger's famous example is nails, hammers, and boards, right? You, a hammer is only a hammer in relation to nails and only in relation to boards, and boards are only boards in relation to nails and hammers. It's this whole referential totality. And right. equipment 
are not singular things that can exist outside of their relationships to other things. Tools depend on other things for them to be what they are, okay? Substances, by definition, don't. So one object has two different modes of being here, right? The lamp is both present at hand. And for Heidegger, we really only interact with a lamp as present at hand when it breaks down, when it stops working. Like that tears it out of its functionality, which embeds it in its, its equipmental readiness to hand and tears it out. And then we isolate it. We, we stand back and we view it as a physical object in space. And so the lamp has two different modes of being for us. Okay, now human beings, they're a third thing altogether, right? Now, of course, you think about capitalism and, and I'm not going on some capitalist, but capitalism primarily wants to treat us as Dasein as ready to hand equipment. It wants to fix us into this mode of being that isn't the full expression of the type of beings that we are, right? Um, so Dave's concept of time energy, right? Dave has tapped in to this very essential aspect of Dasein or human existence. And the point is capitalism in forcing us to occupy this, this mode of being called readiness to hand does a sort of damage to us ontologically uh, through depriving us of the very thing that makes us the type of, that gives us, that defines our mode of being, which is existence. It's it's that, that, oh, don't objectify me. Don't treat me like an object. Yeah. And also don't just reduce me to a pure use value. And then exactly. you have yeah. Kant, you have Kant saying, you know, people are all ends in themselves, not just means this is an enlightenment assumption. And then, you know, but, but implicit to everything Heidegger is doing is like, yeah, uh, we're all treating everything and everyone else as ready to hand. And also we're being treated ready to hand. And it'll be later with the question concerning technology when he says, you know, like we we challenge forth the entire world as a standing reserve of resources, but then we're challenged forth. We think we're masters and possessors of the earth, but at the exact same time, we're on call all the time right. as standing reserve. And then he says human resources, right? Right. So, okay. So you're absolutely right on that. So but here's the thing. So early on, and then in, in one of the other great Heidegger books, it's a collection of essays called Basic Writings. He uh, he has a essay called the The Origin of the Work of Art. And there he argues that works of art have a different mode of being, right? Um, so and then, okay, in uh, Fundamental Concepts of Metaphysics, uh, a lecture course, he's going to argue that animals basically are not reducible to these and that he calls it animals poor in world, Derrida's other thinkers challenge him on this. But the point is for Heidegger, at least early, early on, he, he's talking about these five different modes of being. Now, yeah, the, the primary ones are the three in being and time. But for him, what, what he's getting at is that whether we're talking about equipment, objects, other human beings, works of art, animals, we have an implicit tacit way of f having a kind of familiarity on how to comport ourselves, how to relate ourselves to them, right? This background familiarity is being. It's because it makes beings intelligible in their presence. Like, and, and in a sense, it is what makes them present. Like, it's only through our implicit understanding of what it means to be equipment or what it means to be an object can we comport ourselves to it. So the very presencing of these beings before us is, is mediated or given to us by this intelligibility or background familiarity with them, right? That's being. 
And it's in this sense that being brings these beings to presence, right? So being is the basic pre-theoretical orientation with beings, right? Okay, so that's that's Heidegger early on. In the 30s, he starts, I mean, I see Heideggerians now who say, oh, we shouldn't even talk about a turn in Heidegger. But there's there's at least a change in emphasis. So early on, he's he's more of a Kantian philosopher. He, he's thinking about things in a very formal, uh, ahistorical way, right? And he's saying, here are the, the various modes of being. And yeah, the, the, the overarching project of being in time was to get to like what these modes of being all have in common, which at that context, we could talk about being itself, right? What is, like, if a mode of being has being, right? Uh, if, a, if a mode of being is a certain form of the intelligibility of what it is to be, then what what is the basic orientation of all entities, right? Of all beings. And so he's thinking in, in this kind of formal, Kantian, a historical way. In the 30s, what he starts doing is saying, hey, there's a history to being. There's a history to our intelligibility and familiarity with objects. And so he starts getting into what he calls the history of being. And so the Greeks had a basic orientation with objects. He calls it phusis. Um, the Romans, at one, at one point, I think it's in the sophist uh, lecture course, he talks about the Romans had uh, an understanding of being he calls power. Um, the Christian tradition, uh, the Western Christian tradition, understands objects as ins creatum, as the creations of God. Then with modernity and capitalism, we get to the big mode of being or, or the mode of concealment that it's called inframing, or the German word is gestell. And right. that's what Dave was just talking about. And so here now he's thinking about how different different cultures, different civilizations, different time periods have different background familiarity with objects. Objects in their basic presence have a different tacit intelligibility for us than they do um, in, in other times, right? Okay, so in once, it, we're working with a similar concept of being here because both of them are the intelligibility of beings and intelligibility i again like heidegger that's the word that gets translated this is this quote dreyfus always quoted but intelligibility means almost like know-how or familiarity or tacit understanding right um the point is we can't trying to make all of this explicit like that's heidegger what he was trying to do but like if you, you start asking the average person right and by average person, I don't mean that, like, somebody who doesn't do philosophy, just start saying to them, you know, things exist differently, and they all understand this tacitly, they all get it, but if you ask them to flesh it out for you, they can't. I mean, look, Heidegger, I don't think ever went into this, but numbers, like, think, what is the being of numbers? Okay, so numbers are not merely, like, numbers work so good at, at predicting the universe, you know, science, physics, all of this, right? It's as if numbers are actually somehow written into reality itself. We're not merely projecting numbers onto reality. 
and yet numbers aren't real in the way or they don't they're not beans in the way that lamps are beans or that you and I are beans and yet nonetheless they they are they have being in some sense and what's strange about them is you think about okay if you have you have the number one or the, you take the number one the number two all right the number one is one number the number two is still one number and they like and so my whole point with bringing in numbers is just saying we we have some implicit understanding of how numbers relate to things and yet you try to get into it and flesh out the being of numbers oh it gets real difficult right oh, yeah and so that's the whole thing the whole history of philosophy has been wrestling with what is substance how how are things like are things just bundles of qualities like hume says or is there an underlying substance there like how does the essence of a thing relate to its accidental or inessential quality like we've been trying to make all of this explicit throughout the history of philosophy but for heidegger he thinks that we got to a point where this question of what it means to be has been forgotten and it's getting more and more and more forgotten as time goes on and we get deeper into modernity and so right okay. and this this okay. and i know you want to get to the next stage of being here before we close out but i do yeah. want to say in the first one in being in time um history is there a bit right time is historical and he doesn't get too much into it. And in Division 2, he starts to get into, you know, how authenticity might have something to do with your taking a resolute stand on your historicity and all this stuff. Okay. But the thing is that there's also the anti-Kantian – you say he's pretty Kantian, yes. But he puts the understanding as equiprimordial to discourse and state of mind or mood. And that right. these are – and these are upstream from what we experience as – chitter chatter daily average every day going through the motions fucking you know he calls it falling but there's like this 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 vicious cycle that goes you know so there, if we're falling we're falling from what well we have this this capacity to to reason to understand but it's always coming from a, we have a mood we have the spirit of the age but also like you're going through some shit right and it changes everything you experience and he brings that in really hard really really hard in a very important way that is lost on everybody else in modernity he's doing a critique there that's absolutely important so so a couple things yes and th look this gets us into this isn't so much related to i mean in a way it is what does he mean by being now we're talking more about dasein right now we're talking about more of us and our mode of being so no i don't want to act like like sir, dasein is not the kantian subject uh the tra uh, transcendental unity of apperception heidegger does give kant a lot of credit because he desubstantializes the subject now it's it's a non-substantial synthetic activity right and he likes it it's more of this synthetic activity it's not a thing, he, you know, Heidegger de-thingify, or I'm sorry, Kant de-thingifies the subject, right? So it's a move in the right direction. Whereas for Descartes, the way that Descartes, I mean, the, the mind is a substance, right? So he thinks Kant goes in the right direction. What the difference is, is that for, for Descartes and Kant, the subject is something that stands outside of the world. It's, it, it's not embedded. It is what it is outside of the world. Heidegger takes this subject and embeds it in the world. And its fundamental ontology is its rootedness in the world. How, it, 
Dasein is fundamentally a worlded being that you cannot extract Dasein from the world without, if you deworld Dasein, in a sense, you corrupt it or destroy it even. But again, this is kind of, this is a different thing. So I just, the last, the last concept of being in Heidegger is being itself. So you'll notice, okay, I think the, the, the way to really understand this is by turning to the word presence. Now, when Heidegger talks about beings being present to us or presencing, he makes it clear that there's always a surplus of, uh, of, of concealment wherever there's unconcealment. Wherever there's presencing, we can let's, I, I hate to use terms like this, there's also absencing. A thing is never fully revealed. There's always aspects of the thing unconcealed, no matter how, how much presence, presencing of it you get. So presencing always takes, presencing always occurs against a background of a surplus of absence or, okay, the point is, we don't know everything about every being. Beings have potentials in them that are not immediately present to us and are concealed from us. And say, science can show us certain things, but art, artists can show, like, if science can reveal trees in a certain way, right? We can we can see the tree and certain truths about the tree are unconcealed to us. But an artist painting the tree can show us something we're, we're missing, right? So there's different ways of unconcealing objects. And the point is there's always a surplus depth to them that there's always more that can be unconcealed about them. With all that being said, what Heidegger means by being is how beings are present to us, right? As Dasein, how they're standing there open in, he calls it the clearing, but how they're there open to us, um, showing themselves. And so these first two, which is, I almost want to call it like the transcendental idea of being, which is, it's transcendental because if we don't have any background familiarity with different modes of being, nothing's unconcealed to us. If we don't understand beings as beings, look, he's not going to talk like a Lacanian, but we're almost like in some sort of like psychotic state where like, imagine treating entities as if they're not real, they're just images. Like, okay, so point is, you have this early understanding that has this implicit ahistorical, trans-historical intelligibility of entities. The second one, which makes them present to us, right? Like they're, they're able to be present to us as entities because we have an understanding of being, right? We have an understanding of their mode of presencing, right? How they're present to us. Next, he introduces history into this and we it, like, so the way if you if you if things are unconcealed to you as the creations of God, that's very different than if they're unconcealed to you as the produced by nature, right? Like it gets you in like you live in a different world if Fusus is your ontological principle as opposed to God, right? If God and, and it's not an individualistic thing either, because you as a poet could sit there in a coffee shop and be like well, I don't see the world as a standing reserve of resources just to satisfy mm -hmm. my desires. Actually, I see the, the I see the glooming of the you know the blossoming of the flower and the dew on the blade of grass. And and yeah, but the point is is yeah, you, the whole world is disclosing it in this other mode though. So yeah, right, exactly. exactly. And so so then we but notice what we've got here, right? Both of these 
this is where Heidegger and Heidegger says this straight up in Being in Time. Um, there would be beings without Dasein, but there wouldn't be being. Now that's incredibly important because what he's saying is that the intelligibility of beings depends on Dasein. Now, when you say it like that, that makes sense to us. Like the basic background familiarity we have with things depends on us. It's not in the things themselves. Um, and so this is the, the, the kind of the transcendental Kantian. He's not doing, he's embedding it in the world, right? He's making it concrete, as he would put it. But nonetheless, being depends on us. Okay, the later Heidegger, there's parts where he starts talking about being itself. Now, it, it, it can seem confusing because now he's talking about being, like it, it doesn't just, it doesn't just depend on Dasein. There's being without us. We're there only to stand in the glory of being itself. Now, the question is, how do we make sense of this, right? The point is, when we think about the presencing of entities, the presencing of beings to us, there's two aspects of it. We have to have this intelligibility on how to comport ourselves towards them. On the other hand, and Heideggerians might disagree with, there's the pro, there's nature or being in, spoken of as like the universe. Things physically get made. It's this Deleuzian actualization process, right? The universe makes objects, uh, whether or not we're here. And if if things are present because of nature itself, because nature has actualized them, now there's a, there's a, a deepening to what being is. So on the one hand, there's the modes of intelligibility that we call being, but then there's also nature itself bringing beings into presence, right? So Richard Capabianco, who I mentioned, he puts this emphasis on being itself. So he's written this great trilogy of books. I was joking with him today because uh, his new book has just been released on Amazon. So his first book is called Engaging Heidegger. The second book is called Heidegger's Way of Being. And then the third book is Heidegger's being the shimmering, oh God, now, now I'm embarrassed, I forgot. The shimmering something, right? Um, and you can also, Richard's got great, uh, two great lectures on YouTube. So search Heidegger Richard Capabianco. It's C-A-P-O-B-I-A-N-C-O. Okay. So what Richard's great intervention in Heideggerian studies is, is he's, he, he's pointing out like, no, there's this aspect of being that is not reducible to Dasein. It's not anti-realist. Um, it's not just transcendental in, in, the, in the Kantian sense, right? It's not just something Dasein is doing or reducible to Dasein. And so there you go. Yeah. Um, the, the shimmering unfolding. I told Richard today, so the, the, the joke was, I'm like, well, now that you've got your Heidegger trilogy out, um, move over Star Wars and Lord of the Rings. Cabo Bianco has the coolest trilogy ever. But uh, so, so the point, though, is Richard puts an emphasis, and I don't know if Richard would even like it worded like this at this point, but I, it, look, it's helpful for us. He's saying he's doing a realist interpretation of Heidegger's being. He, he's saying, no, being is not exclusively dependent on Dasein. Now, this gets into this, the, in Heidegger studies, you have Thomas Sheehan and Richard Capabianco. And Thomas Sheehan has argued that Heidegger always just meant meaning by being, which 
okay, it's not meaning in the, the way that, you know, talking about so sir or purse or semiotics or linguistics. It has to do with this background familiarity of, you know, familiar comportment towards things, the way Dreyfus talks about it. But he does I, think- I have to, uh, A video just made the rounds by Samuel Loncar like two months ago, and he's in Ye- at Yale. And I love his channel. It's a small one, and he's also got a podcast and everything like that. He talks about Plato and Heidegger a lot. But um, Samuel Longcar, uh, yeah, he, his uh, thesis was on, um, or his dissertation, I think maybe, uh, was on. Uh, it's you know, it's it, there's a big mistranslation at work. You know, when people say, "Oh, it's you know, it's being, it's it's sense of being," you know, and that's what he's saying. So I think that kind of complements this, which means it's meaning. So. Right, like it's maybe the meaning of all meaning, right? The the okay, so but I think the guy you're talking about, he would have if he asked him, I'm gonna go out on a limb and assume he was inspired by Thomas Sheehan. But Richards tried to argue against this and say, no, there's this realist dimension of Heideggerian being, and Richard takes it as far as to go, no, like I think this was operative even in being in time. This is what he was working for or working towards. But look, I mean, if you ask me, the, the Heidegger of being in time as we got him, I think he's talking about this background familiarity like Dreyfus is talking about. He comes along, he ends up historicizing that as a, this matrix of intelligibility that's historical. And um, that's what we get with, with uh, the Heidegger of the 30s. And then I think Richard's right that, uh, Zizek even, when I talk about this at the conference that you and I were at, in 2018, Dave, Hi, uh, Zizek knows that Heidegger gets to this point where he starts thinking about like, okay, what is being outside of being? Which is to say, what what is it for things to be outside of the correlation between Dasein and entities, right? So Zizek also knows that Heidegger went in this direction, but it, Richard's work is the, you know, the Heidegger scholarship that I think has done the most on it. And so I think those are the three ways Heidegger, what he means by being. Early on, it is an ahistorical, transcendental matrix of the intelligibility of entities. In the middle period, it is a historical, cultural matrix of intelligibility of beings, which is to say both of them, it's the intelligibility that makes beings present to us as beings. And then the third one is this ability of nature or phusis to actively produce objects, to actualize them in space and time. And that's another form of presencing. So each one, one is kind of a historical intelligible presencing of entities. The next one is historical intelligible presencing of entities. And the third is natural or physical actualization of entities in space and time in their presence, right? And so that that's how I understand Heideggerian being, is those three different different ways of viewing it. You get all that, Trey? Now, can I go watch Stranger Things? <laughs> did, yeah. did, you ask, did you ask if I have anything to add? I said, did you get anything out of all that? Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I did actually. I, I actually haven't read anything other than half of being in time, so that actually helped to clarify a lot. Um, thanks for that, Mikey. <laughs> yeah, and then I will just say as my way of closing that uh, 
you know, Heidegger's becoming surprisingly relevant all of a sudden, thanks to Dugan. And that here's the deal. Like, you're not going to get a Duganite, uh, much less Dugan, able to break this shit down as well as Mikey did. But there's a reason Mikey's not a Heideggerian anymore. And so that's a, that's a topic for a future conversation. All right. I will say this, Dave. I, I honestly, I'm going to take this challenge because I know with Dugan, he, he's, he acts like Dasein is, okay, maybe it's not a national thing, but it's, you know, it's some He sort believes of, that there are organic structural cultures. Right, okay. are fundamentally different in their sense of time and language. And yeah. that's what he means by Dasein. But they're unified, they're not split. Right, but you're saying, but that's what he means by Dasein. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can give you quotes where I, I guarantee, uh, let me go search for him. I can give you the quotes where Heidegger is talking about individual Dasein. Like those are not the like I I I know I've read them I've got them like I have a file of just all of the most important Heidegger quotes that I accumulated over those years and I can find you the look the whole point is he wants if you are modifying your everydayness and becoming authentic okay you're not reducible to your culture then you're 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 doing something at an individual level and. Heidegger, if you asked him straight up, hey, look, I know that you're not big on doing this, like, plurality of Daseins or individuality of Daseins, but is a human being Dasein in, in, in a sense, like, of course, my being depends on the being of others, it's being with, it's Dasmon, of course, it's all of these relationships, the, 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 the various structures of existence, right? But would he be opposed to talking about individual Dasein? I don't think at all. And I think that's the, the difference between Dugan is, and I don't know much about Dugan. I, you know, I'm trying to, you know, I try to keep up with Jordan Peterson's and the Dugans and all them. And I, you know, I'm not going to focus on that very much because, you know, that's not where my interest lies. But um, I, I look, I, I, I think Heidegger would definitely, if you say, look, you know, if, okay, if this, if this person over here is uh, inauthentic and this person over here is authentic, then aren't we talking about an authentic Dasein versus an inauthentic Dasein? And we're like, it's not just, of course, culture and all this has everything to do with it because we're beings of our world. But he would not, you go, yeah, this one, this Dasein is in a mode of authenticity, this mode, this one over here. So he's doing an individualistic thing. There's he also says you're never there's no such thing as a fully authentic Dasein ever. He he says that multiple times. So Fine. you can you can be more authentic in how you do something because you're doing it in a way that's singular singularly you. Like the way that we've all come to philosophy, Trey's 18, went to public school, has done all of this on his own, basically. Like that is a singular story. No one's read as much theory as you have by your age and is able to articulate it as well as you are. It's amazing what you're doing. And what Mikey's doing is absolutely amazing. What I'm doing, we're all coming out of things. But I think we've all taken a stand on our own most potential, our own most possibilities in the way that Heidegger's talking about. We're it, 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 bringing it into this Deleuzian sense, like our virtual possibilities, right, that actually exist, the ways that we can definitely go. They're not the ones that other people have, but we, but there are ones that there, you can become a doctor and go through the motions and, and have the white picket fence and the traditional house and the blah, blah, blah. And you, you know, there, so there is a way that you can just say, fuck it. I'm just going to 
do the thing that everyone does, do as one does, which by the way, at Heidegger's time, everyone was just like, oh, to be a good German, you have to be do as a German does. And so there's a degree to which he's also got a chip on his shoulder with this, like, oh, everyone must fall in lockstep and act in a certain way. But he does want to at least say, well, they've got a point though. We've got a German heritage. It's unique. And it's, you know, that is our historicity. Now, that leaves a lot of room, obviously, and it, for, for someone like Dugan to come along and do what he's doing. But like I said, these are – he think, he presupposes singular, holistic stru cultural structures. And the thing is, is like any one of these regions on a map that is carved out where you can say that the predominant statistical number of people here that speak this language you know, are rooted in this other tradition or whatever and therefore should be represented by Russia or by the United States or by whoever, you know – the 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 uh, no um, you can keep redrawing lines on maps you can keep retrying to articulate who the people is and who the outsider is and uh and, and but there's it's it's uh, it's difference all the way down and it is um split contradictory subjects all the way down and there's not gonna you're not gonna you can you can is every cultural identity every culture is split like every, it's it's split within itself. I mean, and th this is one of Sartre's great rebuttals to Heidegger because you're talking about the stuff later on in being in time, and you know, like the the last chapters of Division Two are my least favorite in the book, right? There is a sense where Heidegger he has this conservative disposition towards like, all right, yes, there's individuation of Dasein, but the point is when you individualize yourself, it's you're individualizing yourself in a sense for your culture, your your heritage or whatever. And it's as if there's a kind, even in your individualizing dimension, it's through how you individualize yourself for the culture that you're, you belong, that you're at home. And this is where someone like, this is why Todd doesn't go for Heidegger because Heidegger does seem, he does have a kind of, oh, there's Daseins that belong certain places, right? And I mean, Sartre early on, one of his critiques of Heidegger was like, you have so many people in societies that do not belong to the society that gave rise to them. They're fully, they need to be somewhere else to be themselves. And this idea of a kind of organic Dasein that, you know, yeah, can get lost in um, vainness, but when it individualizes, it's, it's like you individualize yourself so as to be home in your world, right? But Lacan, this is imaginary shit. This is imaginary. Yeah, because it's wholeness. It's ontological wholeness. It's it is like the you know, okay. It's Lacan talks about it in terms of ego and that that kind of thing. But it is it's imaginary in the sense of Heidegger. I believe, and I think we can show this. The my problem with him is of Zizekian and Lacanian. He acts like there really is a place where you belong. There's really a home, and for me to be a split subject in a culture that is itself split, right? There is no big other. That America is not a whole substance, uh, substantial identity. America is a bunch of contradictions. And so, the, you know, I think this is true of everywhere. And I think one of my issues with Dugan, the little bit I've read, I just don't go for this essentializing of one's culture that Russia has some pure identity that has to reclaim or something like that i don't think any place has a pure identity this is the lacanian side we're all split and if anything our identity is how we undermine our identity and so 
alienation is a is not a modification of some pure essence we have alienation is our essence and you know that well that, even you know, like america is used as like this unifying thing when also like the american tradition is undermining these unifying ideas like there's this revolutionary streak in american culture that has always undermine these things right um and that's like the renegade history of the united states right by uh thaddeus russell the we have a fucking renegade history that is a strong streak all the way through and none of these founders were unified none of the founders sat down in the room and said well we all agree our interests are aligned no yeah, but, you, but see the point is right you can also flip it and go well it turns out the, the true to be a true american is to be a passive consumer enjoying entertainment and you know so right it's see where like where do you draw the fucking line where do you ever get to the essence of a culture like i i just i don't think you get to the essence of a culture because there is no pure identity like this is this is the hegelian no, this, is, this is why Jung. this is why Jung. this is why Jung liked spengler and this is why Jung liked um you know these guys who 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 do believe in like this like mythical like you know unification unification shit. Lacan is absolutely juxtaposed to this idea of like this it's whole. So it's so is yeah. Gijet. Yeah. And it, it boils down to the fact that for us, A does not equal A. Like that that's that's the whole principle of dialectics. That your very being is caught up with what you are not. And what you know any kind of conservative cultural essentialism misses this this dialectical component that you are split not only within yourself but also in your relation to other things other things define you like that's that's my issue is that i do not believe that identity is this pure a equals a and that that's you know i'm not a substance ontologist in this i get the substance ontology uh substance ontolo ontological schema I get that we, you know, we're gonna talk about the lamp as it is outside of its relation to other things, and it, that is a way of viewing things totally. But I don't think at the ontological level that is the the core of of beings. So, all right, go watch Stranger Things. Thank you. About time. But Trey, it was great having you here. I'm so glad you could join us. Well, thanks for having me, guys. Dave, you were just kind of like, eh, like I, I could have done without you, but. Trey, you were great. <laughs> <laughs> Man, this was seriously like the great – this next few days for me is a grand finale before I'm back to wage labor, like full-time. Yeah. Like, so well, you thank you bang. so much. Going out with a bang. Thank you so much. All right. All right. Have a good I'll night. Guys later. Have a good one. Later, guys. Bye. If you all found that informative and enjoyable or useful or overwhelming and interesting – then come back to it in the future, um, share it with yourself and others. Uh, and what, one thing I really want to um, emphasize uh, as we close out here, I think this is all done in, in the sort of the, with that, in that sense of like brotherly love. I, I hope that that came through. Uh, and, and to that point, as I close out here, I'm playing the meme reel that has been uh, that has developed uh, from my meme gang that has been uh, kind of assembling over the last few months. Uh, notably, almost all of these memes come from Master Signified Bodies, aka Andrew in the Navy, who's going to be the clinician. 
uh, as well, and he's got a brand new channel, so you gotta check it out. As well as our admin for the Facebook groups and for the Instagram page, Plead Memes, Dimbus McNair. Thank you for doing what you're doing, man. The, the the memes that these two have put together, I hope that the, that that the, that these are fun and not insulting for everybody involved. Um, I hope that uh, people get it as far as like that goes. I know that, um, yeah. Well, it's just all in fun, you know. But uh, I th- I feel like it's a fun way of bringing to the foreground something that is really important, really really important, because. These arguments around the between the old and new left, between the Marxist Leninists and the you know Frankfurt School Adorno Horkheimer Habermas Marcuse types, um, as well as you know these I I just had Ted Reese on to do this, uh, you know Ted Grossman on how everyone in the Second International got the crisis theory of capitalism wrong and what we can learn from that. you know, these are all like really important contradictions and we have to work through these. Um, usually it seems like people want to work through picking apart whether or not we should associate with people or dismiss um, people. You know, should we get rid of Chris Catrone? Is Chris Catrone done? You know, is is this the last straw with Chris Catrone? We're going to write him off or 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 whoever it is that you know you're speaking to or about instead of just getting into the ideas getting into the concepts getting into the contradictions and working through those contradictions right this idea that we just keep making the contradictions go below the surface and and just focus on petty socialite bickering bullshit right no we're not going to do that we're not like that and uh i think the memes are just for fun as a way of bringing people to the ideas um, but I do hope that people will get that sense for the sort of fraternity and solidarity and, uh, and treat one another respectfully in the comments, um, of this video. If anybody comes in here acting like a dumbass to the gulag with you, I will not tolerate it. Um, so please keep it respectful. I do want to be able to have Catron back on in the future to have amicable relations with the platypus affiliates. And uh, I think that the work that they're all doing is supremely important. And, uh, but also the work that the meme groups is doing, supremely important. So make sure to check the description of this video and or the comment section for the list of links to meme group pages. And most importantly, go subscribe to Master Signified Bodies. To Todd McGowan's channel, of course, if you are, have, if you haven't already, what's wrong with you? Um, listen to Why Theory, and uh, yeah, make sure to watch the conversations that I've had with Michael Downs. I think that they're some of the most important, useful conversations on the internet. And uh, I didn't see the point of Lacan or Zizek, really. I mean, I liked Zizek. I mean, how can you not like Zizek? I liked him, but I didn't know what he was for in that sort of like that takedown article from Current Affairs. I didn't know what he's good for. I didn't know what he's for um, until until first I got Lacan for Mikey and then I've been getting Zizek. And if, if it wasn't for Todd McGowan, um, you know, having this dialogue with Michael over time, then I don't think he would have been able to have that dialogue with me. And so it just really means the world, Todd, that you've done all this for us and, and uh, that you keep doing the work that you're doing. We think it's super important. 
and uh, we we respect and appreciate you immensely. So, cheers, everybody. Have a happy Memorial Day weekend, and uh, see ya.